Let's go ahead and get the obvious out of the way. Yes, this is the second time I've done a rumination on Dragon Age. The last one was done about six years ago, back in the old and terrible part of my show, which I keep wanting to delete and people keep saying, no, don't do it. But, uh, <laughs> point being, I made the comment uh, last year that I would be okay with the idea of doing proper remakes of my own ruminations, trying to do them better, basically. But how can I possibly justify the time to do that? I'm up to here with uh, you know with work right now. I can't possibly do that. So a couple of uh, viewers kind of got together and was like, "Why don't we just have it so our request, you know, for for Patreon for for my patrons for this coming year, be one of the games that's already been looked at." You know, basically slotting it in the proper remake in instead of a new game. That's actually been done twice this year. Once with this game, and uh, once with another we'll see later. So here we are. Dragon Age Origins again. I do admit it was a treat to go back through this game. It's always a treat to go back through this game. It's my, you know, it's, it's in my top ten games for a reason. I absolutely adore this game. Uh, its flaws certainly exist, but yeah, we'll try and cover that as we go through this. One of the things that is most noticeable about Dragon Age Origins is how much polish is on display. There is an enormous amount of specifics regarding uh, character design, regarding dialogue, regarding the construction of the narrative and the construction of events as far as gameplay and how events can go. And something that I don't really acknowledge as often as I should, there is a huge amount of choice in Dragon Age Origins. Now what I mean by that is in Dragon Age, I'm just going to refer to to Dragon Age from now on, is that okay? In Dragon Age, you can do an amazingly large variety of different things during your playthrough of the game. Now that makes sense, because as everyone knows, Dragon Age was not built with a sequel in mind. There was no intention to continue it. And when you only have to think about this one game, you can th let the player do whatever. Because you don't have to think about consequences in a sequel. You don't have to be like, okay, we have to write these three completely separate sequel stories to fit all the choices the player made. Nah, you just let them do whatever. And you can do a lot of different things. You can actually end up with a party of basically one by the end of the game if you do everything in a very specific way. You can kill off an amazing amount of your characters or simply not recruit them. My first time playing this ever... I actually didn't recruit um, uh, the dog or, you know, the Mabari, Barkamond. What? I prefer Barkamond to Barkspawn. I, I didn't recruit Barkamond, and I didn't even know about Sten. So I just kind of kept going. And I ended up killing Zevran, too. <laughs> like, <laughs> you could completely skip Liliana. Like, you're kind of forced into Morrigan and Alistair, but thanks to circumstances and choices, you could end up killing them throughout the course of the game, too. It's pretty easy to do. And I love that, but it's kind of created problems for the sequels. Which led me to my biggest philosophical quandary. The last time I did this, I had just finished Dragon Age 2. This is, again, about six years ago, uh, before Dragon Age Inquisition was even mentioned. The last time I played through this game prior to this was immediately prior to Inquisition. I was doing a lore run of the Dragon Age series up to Inquisition. Uh, and then I, was, I did a premiere run, our very first premiere run ever, actually, of Inquisition. And now I've played all of them and read, I believe, all of the books, and I'm left with a quandary. Dragon Age Origins, if you really zoom the camera out, you'll notice that there's quite a bit of elements of it that don't quite fit the rest of the franchise. And I don't mean... 
like big sweeping things. I mean, there's a lot of little details here and there that you don't really think about until you until you focus in your your zoom so that you're only thinking about Dragon Age Origins. I had to decide if I was going to be ruminating on this with all of Dragon Age in mind or just Origins. I have decided to do it with just Origins in mind. There's enough things that are different that speculation and theory crafting and con- conversation is, is going to be different. The two biggest examples are the Chantry and the Kunari, both of whom are, well, not really all that fleshed out in Origins. The Chantry is the church, but if you look at the Chantry and if you divorce the Chantry from the Templars, which... I admittedly don't like doing, but if you do do that, the Chantry's just a vaguely religious organization which isn't really all that awful and doesn't really do all that much bad other than the usual stagnation church thing that most fictional churches do. The Cunari are practically a non-entity in Origins. And this is actually also true with the Tevinter, who we hear about and we know some backstory of thanks to the Codex, but for the most part are just kind of there. A lot of the fleshing out of the world of Dragon Age really came from the books and the subsequent games. So, and, and in different directions. Because, I mean, granted it's Kirkwall, but look at the Chantry in Dragon Age 2 versus the Chantry in Dragon Age Origins. And again, keep the Templars separate. Hell, even if you include the Templars, look at the massive difference between the Templars under Gregor versus the Templars under Meredith, right? So you can tell how they were stretching out in different directions as the franchise continued, and with logical reason. It also made issues with things like the fact that you have to consider that so many of the playing characters can be dead when you consider thing, you know, going forward. They had to basically cheat with both Ogrand and Liliana because they just insisted on having them in, in future games and they can die in Origins. So, what can you do? <clears throat> But I digress. Let's talk about the gameplay a little bit. Now, I've gone on record as saying that Dragon Age Origins... Sorry, I said I just can't start saying Dragon Age. Dragon Age is by far my favorite Bioware game just to play, although Mass Effect 2 challenges that. However, going back through this time, obviously I was I'm cheating for the sake of time because this is an enormous game and I had a lot of t- ground to cover, but I actually set up saves at certain points and basically turned the cheats off because I wanted to challenge that presumption. I wanted to say, is that really true? And I am forced to acknowledge that that presumption is not 100% true because certain aspects of gameplay are just not that enjoyable at all. For record, I have beaten this game on Nightmare, and it was enjoyable to do so. But I did so as a mage because, this is just opinion, Play style as a melee is awful, and frankly kind of boring. I also find it just absolutely aggravating the way that, you know, you have to mod in certain functionality if you want the the AI setups thing to work well. Although I do love having that, the gambit system. I know they don't call it gambits. But, you know, the gambit system is something I'm always in favor of when it comes to party combat in just about any game ever. And I do think that is one of the better aspects of Dragon Age Origins, being able to set up your party so you don't have to control them, while simultaneously having the option to control them manually and individually, and being able to pause at will and unpause at will. It's a lot of mechanics that are in other games, other Bioware games even, but the combination of them work well here, and in fact I think work best. So despite my my you know removal of some of my opinion, I do still think this is some really tight and solid gameplay, especially since you can play in behind mode or top-down mode depending on what your preference is. I will also say, however, that something that is a weird trend is that mages are overpowered. This is true in Origins, this is true in 2, and this is true in Inquisition. 
I suppose that makes sense, given the setting and given the nature of magic in the setting. But it does make it a little bit frustrating, because while you can always play a melee or a rogue or whatever for a challenge, if you're just wanting to play them for fun, it always feels like you're just a little bit worse than you probably should be. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the Fade, which I'll talk about a little bit more in-depth later, even from a gameplay perspective. But all I'm going to say right now is that the Fade was clearly designed with a mage in mind. That's all I'm going to say about that. One of the other things that I often praise Dragon Age Origins for, I swear I'll stop saying Origins at some point, is for the voice acting. Now, there's not really any actively bad voicing acting voice acting in this game. Well, not all of it is super amazing, holy crap, massively subtle, incredibly nuanced performances, like, say, Claudia Black, who absolutely nails Morgan. Um, there is, nevertheless, a high level of quality that they held, even for the random NPCs. And this game is 99% voice acted. The only things that aren't is, you know, text stuff like notes or codex entries, and, of course, the main character. This allows for an immense amount of immersion for me. This is something that I've been saying over in my own Lorewalker Theater thing. Even an NPC is important when it comes to voice acting, and therefore even an NPC needs good voice direction and a good voice actor. Even if you only see them once. Even if they're just there once, having that different voice and having that different presentation helps immensely in making you feel like this is a world that actually is rather than a series of linear corridors you are playing through. And I think that it is one of the biggest reasons why the story is so uh, powerful for me. Because that leads me to the lack of uh, uh, karma meter. There's no good evil in this game. There's, there's approval with certain uh, companions, which kind of takes the place of it, mechanically speaking. But overall, there's no paragon renegade. There's no you know, open palm or closed fist. There's no light side or dark side or whatever. There's just your choices. Um... One of the benefits of being able to be a good guy is that this is a game, this is one of the very few games where you can go do a quest and help someone and the person says, oh, thank you, here, I don't have much, but take what I have. And then you can say, no, just keep it. And they'll say, oh, thank you, sir. You get nothing out of that because you shouldn't get anything out of that. There's no meter that goes up, there's no karma thing that increases, and there's no side benefit or increased experience or whatever. Dragon Age Origins is one of the only games I know that encourages you to be good for the sake of being good rather than for some kind of monetary or mechanical reward. But the vo reason the voice acting helps that, and this is most true when you go through it, if you go through Redcliffe and help everyone and do everything, the voice actors there absolutely nail the presentation of people who are thankful I can't put into words how much it helps when when a voice actor throws themselves into saying, thank you, thank you so much. Oh, my God, my beautiful girl is back. I was so scared for her. Or, oh, you know, Father always told me to, to say thank you, you know, thank you. And all, all, the, all those little presentations add to that feeling of I did something, I accomplished something, which is, of course, one of the fundamental points of a video game to begin with. You doing interactive medium, right? I love that, and it's something that they absolutely nailed throughout the course of this game. Um, I also love the the fact that you can still be... Uh, how do I put this? The fact that you can be a gradient. 
Dragon Age Origins does not require you to be good or evil or in between. You can choose your own personality. What I mean by that is oftentimes when you're playing a role-playing game, even one that allows you to select dialogue options or whatever, you're kind of pigeonholed into one of those three categories. You're good universally, bad universally, or kind of neutral universally. And sometimes you're not even neutral. You're just doing bad and then good to, to, to even it out. Tor is a good example of that. So having uh, in Dragon Age Origins, there's so many times where you get a dialogue option and there's five dialogue options that you can pick from. It allows for a gradient, and it allows you to, to decide. It doesn't really change much. It's all about you playing the kind of character you want to. You shaping your warden is what this is all about, enabling you to have that kind of investment in your character. It's one of the very few games I know that allows you to roleplay, truly allows you to roleplay, um, Maybe you're a nice person who gets really pissed off at Templars. Or maybe you're overall a decent person unless you get attacked. Or maybe you're a violent person except you have a soft spot for elves or whatever, right? That's the other thing they do correctly. It's not just always universally evil or rude, which is, which is the other shorthand for evil. You have a choice to pick and choose on, on a case-by-case basis so that different issues, your character can have different opinions on different issues. You're not, I will help everyone universally. Maybe you're playing someone who's a bigot. Maybe you're playing someone who is more positively inclined towards men. Maybe you're playing someone who really has a soft spot for elves, like I mentioned earlier, right? Like, there's a lot of different ways to play that. And it's all on you because they gave you that numerous amount of options. And I love that. Yes, I also know that that kind, was kind of a thing in a lot of older games. In fact, another game I've played recently, uh, Torment, Tide of Zumanara, has a similar thing. But it still deserves praise uh, when it's done. And this is probably one of my favorite examples of that overall. Um, there's, I wanted to talk about the combat here, but I kind of already have. The only thing I wanted to mention is that there's three types of skills for the most part in this game. This, this goes true regardless of what class you are. There's incredibly overpowered, there's filler, and then there's situational. Now I have to admit... That could be said about a lot of games, but I wanted to mention it in this case especially because I feel like there's several spells, especially as a mage, but this is true for non-mages as well, where you pick the talent or you pick the ability in the tree just because you want the thing that's after it. Just because it's like, that's the filler stuff. And there is a strangely large amount of that in this game. This is mostly true for me as a warrior. Where it's like, well, I want that ability and that ability as a tank, for example, so I have to get these two and this one to get to that point, right? Okay, whatever. Um, there's also some abilities that are just stupidly strong. Monoclash is the most obvious example here. You can pretty much solo this game with Monoclash. I mean, th that's not 100% true, but the amount of enemies that you can just crush with that one spell is actually a little bit ridiculous. Never mind if you start adding on other things like being an arcane warrior who's a blood mage using Monoclash. I mean, you're just death at that point. I don't mind the fact that they allow us to build a super powerful character, the only thing I regret is that it feels like some characters just noticeably lag behind in usefulness. Two-handed sword uh, character being an excellent example of someone that just doesn't feel like it does the same output as other classes. Something that would be lovely to finagle if we ever did a proper remake of this game, for example. Um, I want to comment on the cutscenes, too, as I'm looking at right here. Uh, 
I just went through Jade Empire recently, so it was kind of a reminder of the KOTOR cutscenes. And you know what I mean, right? The KOTOR cutscene is shkunk, and the camera like locks into a person and just stays there staring at them, and then shkunk locks onto this other person. You know what I'm talking about. Having actual camera work with actual directing going on probably helped my enjoyment of this game uh, a lot. Even though it still does the typical, you know... The 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 two court the the two thirds side kind of perspective where someone's just there kind of chatting and gesturing. They still do a lot more with the, the camera so that it wasn't jarring and actually made it more immersive as opposed to, you know, the exact opposite of that. I also want to comment really quick. I meant to mention this earlier when it came to uh, the dialogue options. Dwarf Noble is probably my favorite origin. It's tied. Dwarf Noble and Dwarf Commoner are my two favorite origins. I know, commoner. One of my favorite things about Dwarf Noble, though, is that it kind of tells you what kind of a game you're in for right at the offset. A lot of origins is nuanced. What I mean by that is, in a lot of fiction, sometimes there's a bad guy, and they're a bad guy because they kill people. Sometimes in fiction, you know, killing someone is the wrong choice and saving them is the right choice. Uh, sometimes, you know, in other words, a lot of fiction tends to lean heavily on a morality system in one way or another, whether literal a karma mechanic or not, but nevertheless presents it as if there is good and then there is bad, and then that's it. Pure black and white perspective. Dragon Age is immensely nuanced, very, very gray, like a gray warden. What am I t- I'm sorry, that's terrible, I apologize. But the Dwarf Noble sh- uh, origin showcases this immediately. Small story, the second time I played this game ever, well, that's not true. Yeah. I think it was actually the third time. The first time I was playing the whole game ever, what I did is I went through each of the origins. I ended up using a Human Noble as my first origin, for anybody curious. And as I was going through the origins, I did Dwarf Noble, uh, I believe, second. I could be wrong about that. I think I did Mage first. And I did Dwarf Noble second or third or whatever it was. And as I was going through, you know, I'm, I'm going to the point where it's like, hey, you should totally convince such and such to do this over on the, the, the bargaining floor. And I'm like, okay, I'm with the nobility, aristocracy, wheeling and dealing. I'm with it. I got it. So I go ahead and accept it. And then the guy's like, hey, they're playing you for chumps. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 you're just the thing. And no, they actually were playing me for chumps. They were doing something that seemed beneficial to me that was definitely beneficial to them. It was a, it, it wasn't much, I'll be honest, but it was nuanced and it caught me by surprise that they were willing to do that kind of writing in this game. And then I started noticing it more and more throughout the rest of the work. I mentioned polish. This is one of the stupidest things in this entire game, but I never noticed it before until this playthrough. I did this on stream, so there's actually video proof of this, uh, at least for another couple of weeks. When you are going through Ostagar, the very beginning, uh, before the battle, at Ostagar, and you, you go and get in front of one of the archers, they will stop shooting. They actually won't shoot because you're in front of them. But if you move just a little bit to the side, they'll start shooting the target again. That is impressive attention to detail for something that is absolutely irrelevant and is completely pointless other than to add to the immersion of the game, to make it feel like less of a game and more of a world you're playing through. I talk often about the concept of brushstrokes. I'm not sure I've ever played a game with more brushstrokes in it than Dragon Age Origins. Where to start? Now, Now, so let's talk about the story now. Let's talk about 
mages. I played a mage for this playthrough, uh, for obvious reasons. Magic in this setting is strong, but also strangely limited. A mage can be like, oh, I'm super powerful, and can still be killed by a random archer with a bow and one arrow, right? Or one guy getting up there with a sword. So mages are, in lore, glass cannons, and usually have severe restrictions on what they can do and how they can do, either societally and culturally, or literally, because monopoles are a thing in lore as well. It's one of the reasons why people tend to have so much lyrium around, but even that has the counter-effect of, of lyrium addling or becoming addicted to lyrium, which is a very serious problem. Never mind the fact that you need lyrium supplies, which you usually have to get through the dwarfs, and basically means more money. I like all of this because it presents a well-constructed scenario where mages are powerful, but not too powerful. It hits a good balance point. It also, of course, brings up the other obvious problem with mages. The fact that every mage ever, all the time, always, is a threat, whether they want to be or not. I don't know a lot of other settings that really do this kind of a thing, where there's someone who is born into something who is a threat simply because they are born that. I actually have something like that in my own setting, and anybody who's watched the Primus stuff knows what I'm talking about. But simply by being a mage, you have the probability of being possessed by a demon or being influenced by a demon and opening a, a portal through the veil and fade stuff coming out and everything going to hell. Just by being it. Now... That makes a lot of what they do about the mages very understandable. Let's keep the mages in one area. Let's teach them. Let's provide for them. Let's take care of them. All of that, on paper, makes perfect sense. We actually had a discussion about the mage problem during the recent stream I was doing, so just about a week ago now, uh, when I was prepping for this game. And as we were going through it, I, po I pointed out the obvious flaws in this, because on paper it is a good concept. But in execution, the mage towers are prisons. In execution, they are people who are oppressed, who are pushed down as a consequence of them. And even the nicer mage towers still treat them as if they are prisoners, as if they are a threat, and as if there is nothing wrong with doing whatever they have to in order to keep them contained, because mages are a threat. You can see the Templar mindset here, but it's also very easy to understand the mage mindset. I don't want to get too much into real-life controversial topics, but I imagine some of you out there can understand being born a certain way and being basically treated worse as a consequence of something that you never chose. It's not like a mage chooses to be born, which is another interesting aspect of the setting. It is birthed into you. It's a bloodline thing. It can come up from people who were not mages, and it can have an actual trait, which can be passed down genetically. There's actually a family... Forgive me for getting into Dragon Age 2 stuff here. But there's a family mention, I can't remember the family line, forgive me, that's actually been actively trying to breed Majory out of the family line, you know, through through generations of effort, and which fails miserably thanks to your your father and mother. But anyways, getting off getting off topic. So the idea of the circles makes a lot of sense. One only has to look at something like Kirkwall to understand the reality of how that doesn't work. But again, even something like here, this tower, the circle here, is a place that is oppressive, even if they try to be polite about that oppression. There are still mages here who are a little bit... <laughs> and there are Templars here who are more than willing to kill, basically just because. 
we learn a little bit about this from Anders as well uh, over in Awakening, and I don't want to cover too much of that because I'm trying to keep my focus just on Dragon Age Origins. All I'm going to say is that the Gilded Cage is very much enforced, which brings up an interesting question. Do you think that there is a better solution available, given the circumstances, that can withstand corruption and personal bias? Again, even a good idea has to be executed properly. This is something I've been talking about so, so much recently when it comes to game ruminations and game design concepts in general. So you have to do it right. So is there such a thing that can actually be a better option for the mages? I mean, I've heard people discuss in real life the idea that maybe it would be better to just kill off mages. They're born, ah, they've got magical blood. Better to just nip that in the bud, just get rid of it as a problem. This is also ignoring the other side of things, that a mage who is disciplined and can control themselves can benefit society greatly. It's been shown several times in history that mages are an enormous change to military conflict, never mind the ability of medical technology. I mean, one of the things that's mentioned is that whether or not, you know, a, a cut from a chunk of iron that may or may not have any rust on it, whether that's going to be lethal thanks to infection or just a small issue depends on the distance between you and the nearest mage who can cure you. And again, that's an in-lore thing, not just a gameplay thing. Just food for thought. As ever, love to hear your guys' comments. Let's talk about the Chantry really quick. So as I mentioned, the Chantry is overall much more uh, positive if we look just at Dragon Age Origins compared to the rest of the franchise. They're your typical Catholic-inspired religious group, which has some obvious internalized corruption and promotes stagnation, like I mentioned earlier, but otherwise is filled with a surprising number of decent people who is actively going out of its way in order to try and help others around it. One thing I bring up about the Chantry, though, because I don't actually have much to say about the Chantry itself in Dragon Age, do you think their story about the history of magic and Darkspawn is correct or not? Now, I mentioned this during the lore run of Dragon Age, that a lot of the lore we have of the backstory of Dragon Age is all speculation. Most of it's said in character, which means it's automatically something that is suspect. Now... Having looked back at it and having gone through it, I have a very strong feeling that it was probably intended that most of the mythos was, at the very least, close to accurate, and that they have since changed their minds on that and gone back and started retconning some of that in order to make it that it was always lies. Uh, Trespasser for Dragon Age Inquisition is a good example of what I'm talking about. So, that leaves us with an interesting question about the Darkspawn. What are the Darkspawn? Why are they? And where did they come from? Now, even if we en encompass all of Dragon Age to date, we still don't have qu answers for basically all of these questions. We have in-character speculation and out-of-character speculation. The most obvious one being that, you know, the mages went and they, they entered the Fade and, oh, it was horrible. They, they became corrupted or were corrupted, depending on which version you prefer. I, I, I gotta say, just really quick, really quick, I have a tendent, I, I have a inclination to believe Corypheus. At least in Dragon Age 2. I know that's off topic, but I mention that because that is obviously very relevant for the entire concept of the original Tevinter and the original Archdemon slash Old Gods and the original Darkspawn. His comments about it was black, it was supposed to be golden, but it was black, that doesn't sound like a lie to me. 
That sounds... You have to presume whether or not someone is lying in character or not based on circumstances. And for someone who basically had just woken up and was still disoriented and had no particular motive for lying to the people who was listening to him, I don't think he was trying to deceive us there. Thus making the whole situation more complicated. Now, I know I've strayed from Dragon Age Origins again, but I bring that up because obviously that corruption came from somewhere... And based on that, I think it's more likely it came from the Black City itself, which unfortunately we still don't have a lot of information on what exactly the Black City is, although it probably has something to do with the ancient elves. Whatever, I'm getting way off topic here. Back to the core point. Let's talk about what we do know. The Darkspawn and how they operate. You know, they're and then they go back underground. And then they go and then they go back underground. We do know the Darkspawn have the capacity for, uh, let's call it basic thought. I usually refer to it as animal thought. But they can't really function without a, a cohesive mind guiding them. One of the ways I like to mentally think about this is, imagine you're playing an RTS, like StarCraft II or whatever, and all of your units are there. Now, if you just take your hands off the keyboard and watch the game, you're probably going to lose, first of all. But second of all, your units still have the ability to do things. You know, They'll still shoot at someone who comes at them. They'll still be like, oh my gosh, if something tries to push through them. But they won't really do anything complex or complicated. They won't actually try to take any initiative. They will functionally take no actions, even though they are capable of acting. Not until you put your hand on the mouse can you actually start making stuff happen. That's how I like to think of what's going on with the Archdemons. You know, the Archdemon is the one playing the RTS and saying, okay, everyone get together, let's get some let's get weapons, we need to get some more recruits, let's get some more people down here, let's get some more women down here. I know it's horrible, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> right? I bring that up, though, because... One of the things that's mentioned is that the Darkspawn are innately drawn to the Archdemons. And once they find them, they... Excuse me, I'm saying that wrong. They're drawn to the old gods, which is the dragons. They're drawn to the dragons, and then they corrupt them. And the dragons are like, ah, oh, I am now an Archdemon. And now I will bring my hatred upon the world. I don't buy that. Because there's a massive question mark there. Why would the Darkspawn be drawn to the dragons? What is it about the dragons exactly, who are slumbering under the earth for reasons we still don't 100% know why? Why would they be drawn to them? Why would they then corrupt them upon interaction? What I think is more likely is that what we're seeing is something that's basically random chance. That the Darkspawn roam the underground... Just roam. You know, brains. Oh, what's this? Yeah, it's a dragon brain. And they accidentally bumble into these things, and thus, in so doing, cause them to become archdemons, which leads to the blight. It could also be argued, based on our own definition of a blight, that a blight is technically going on all the time. The only difference is whether there's someone leading it or not. That's actually another interesting uh, point that's been brought up before. The idea that... The Darkspawn numbers have never really been going down. And thus, even if we kill all the Archdemons, the Blight as a concept will never really go away because there will always be these Darkspawn down in the tunnels. The only way to deal with that would be to get rid of all the Archdemons and then to, to, to have a massive, probably years-long effort of just slowly cleaning out everything you can down there in order to try and prevent the Darkspawn from ever existing again. Unless, of course, you had a cure for the Darkspawn. Architect, excuse me. Uh, one of the things I like about the Darkspawn is the fact that they are a wonderful backdrop to the story. There's a lot of different villainous characters and a lot of different enemies that you have to go through throughout the course of this game. But the two big ones are the Archdemon and the Blight and Terran Loghain. 
also known as Awesome McAwesome, or Kane, if you prefer. Another game I've checked out, uh, looked at recently. The the contrast between these two is one of the things I always praise about Dragon Age. The Darkspawn uh, serve as a wonderful baseline, narratively speaking. They are a thronging horde, which basically doesn't really have the ability for fundamental communication, never mind proper sentience and sapiens, and they just are kind of here to kill, 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 uptake, okay, now kill, kill, kill. That's all there is to them. Now, that is boring in its own right, and I will admit that the Darkspawn side of Dragon Age is probably one of the more boring aspects of the story, I'm willing to admit that. But I also firmly believe that without that baseline, Dragon Age wouldn't be able to shine as much. The, 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 the parallel I've used before, I think this is during the lore run, is the, the Darkspawn provide a black backdrop so that the darker shades and the lighter shades of the characters in front of this backdrop are more contrasted unless we have more appreciation for them given that. It also kind of serves as an, uh, another method, but I'll get to that later. I want to talk about that later. I also want to mention the Darkspawn basically blight everything. I've had a theory for a long time that the Darkspawn blight, that the blight, the, the corruption, is actually of magical nature more than it is physical. That it metaphysically alters something, which then changes its physical makeup. Um, this is probably most demonstrable in the fact that there's just chunks of flesh and ichor and weird stuff all over the place when you're going through areas that are infested with darkspawn but also on top of that is the fact that there is you know plenty of people and things that can be infested by darkspawn taint even if they are not physically interacting with them obviously the mabari drinking darkspawn blood or any person taking in darkspawn blood is going to be a problem but then we also see you know herbivores and plants who get affected by darkspawn as well in areas where the darkspawn are not bleeding all over them hence my earlier point now, granted, blood is a very powerful and notable thing in this setting. It's one of the reasons why blood magic is so strong, which leads me naturally into talking about blood magic. Blood magic, blood magic in many ways feels like what the dark side of the Force should be and what it's been interpreted to be in some fictional works, notably back in the KOTORs in the EU. The idea that it is a very powerful thing that naturally would be the kind of thing an evil person would want and would want to use, but isn't of itself not an evil thing. Blood magic is simply using blood in order to use to basically draw for more power than you otherwise would. Uh, think of it like an expanded mana pool. And, of course, blood magic allows you to affect the mind. This, the idea behind that being something along the lines of, since I have access to literal power of blood, which is an important thing in this setting for whatever reason, um, that blood allows me to affect your blood, allows me to affect your life, to dominate or control or whatever you want to think of that as. Um, given how much the physical realm of this setting is so malleable, I mean, we actually literally see, to use a later example, someone who accepts a demon and becomes an abomination, and they just, and they turn into this thing within seconds. Now, some of that may be the limitations of the game engine, but I don't think so. I think that's just the physical representing the metaphysical, and given certain things we learn about the Fade later, that's probably actually true. Ergo, <laughs> getting back to my point, blood magic. I love the idea of blood magic being, like I say, it's like the dark side. I feel like I've already made my point. 
you could see why someone who has an evil nature or someone who is more inclined towards selfishness or greed or pettiness might be more inclined towards blood magic. It gives them more power. It allows them to manipulate or influence others. It allows them to do more than they could, right? But you can also see why a perfectly good person could use that as well. I need to be able to defend all of these people from this entire bandit camp, blood magic, and then using that to defeat them, right? It is, of course, worthy of note that if the Chantry saw someone using blood magic, they would go after them immediately, uh, or at least the Templars would. This is probably one of the biggest flaws overall of the mage problem I mentioned earlier, to kind of wrap this whole section up here. The idea that they're thinking of it in absolutes, that there's no such thing as the very concept of an exception, which is uh, ironic because it's a very black and white perspective in a setting that's been made very gray and showing a lot of nuance. But anyways, also quick aside before I move on, what's up with the Genlocks? Why are they mages? They're dwarves. I mean, I know they're not actually dwarves. I, I do have a point there. I like to think that the base creature really only serves as a template for the physical form and nothing else. That the whole reason why dwarves are generally not capable of casting magic is because of the nature of their birth and their being surrounded by lyrium in such quantities for so much of their life. Now, of course, that is immediately contrasted by the fact that any dwarf who was born surface-side and spends a lot of the time surface-side should be able to use magic, and we have no exception to that. But I don't know. It's ultimately the answer. It's just, just food for thought. Food for thought. So the Grey Wardens. The Grey Wardens obviously are kind of central to this game, since you play one. And uh, there aren't that many in the whole thing. The Grey Wardens keep things very quiet and very secret. There are reasons why they could do that, why they try to play things close to the chest. As weird as this may sound, I wonder why. Like, I, I get that there's reasons behind this, but especially in certain circumstances, why not just be more open about it? Uh, I also have to, before I go more into that, actually, let me, let me switch over to a different uh, topic here. Let's talk about the problem of the Grey Wardens, because there's a Grey Warden problem, just like there's a Mage problem. The Grey Warden problem is the fact that the Grey Wardens are a basically integral aspect of fighting any Blight. And not a lot of people are 100% sure why that is. Like, you know, everyone knows Grey Wardens fight Darkspawn, but they, they probably are aware, at least passively, of the whole sensing the Darkspawn thing, but not, basically no one really knows of the core problem that you need a Grey Warden in order to defeat an Archdemon. I'll bring that up in a minute here, too. So, you need Grey Wardens, but not everyone's really sure why you need Grey Wardens. But Grey Wardens also don't really serve a purpose in the intervening years. So what's the point of being a Grey Warden when there's not a Blight? Now, obviously, you can see why this is automatically a problem here. You as a Grey Warden society need to be keeping recruits coming in because you're going to age and die eventually. And there's probably not going to be another Blight for a while. Remember, it's been four centuries since the last Blight. So you need people to keep taking this oath and, and becoming, you know, corrupted with, with the whole harrowing and possibly dying in the process. And you need to, people to do that knowing there might not be a blight anytime soon because you need to keep the, 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 the Grey Wardens going as a very concept. I mean, what's the alternative? Recruiting people to the Grey Wardens, not having them do the harrowing so they have none of the abilities and they have none of the detriments, 
And then what do you do if Darkspawn starts showing up? Or what do you do if a Blight starts? Oh, quick, quick. Guys, we need a bunch of Grey Wardens right now. Quick, quick. Right? I mean, I could see that being a logical response. But the other problem is the Grey Wardens could wield tremendous amount of political clout, given their relevance, and thus more or less naturally become a political entity, rather than a, uh, let's call it a reality entity. What I mean by that is, during a Blight, Grey Wardens serve a very functional purpose. Defeat Archdemon, disperse Blight, right? That's reality. But once that's gone, well, now we have these people who are beloved by most people. You know, it just about anyone knows what a Grey Warden is. Even some random dope on the street, some illiterate guy or girl, knows what a Grey Warden is, right? So there's a lot of clout and a lot of influence that goes with that. I bet if Weishaupt said, hey... We need to do such and such. I'm pretty sure most people would probably listen to that. But that also comes with a consequence as well, because they still need money. Or, to be slightly more accurate, they still need funding. They still need resources. They still need personnel. They still need traders. They still need equipment. They still need repairs and services and all the things to maintain what is functionally a private army in multiple nations simultaneously you can see how it's so easy for the Grey Wardens to get caught up in political matters. This game itself, even ignoring future things we learn uh, about what's going on up in the free marches and whatnot, even just in this game, we see how politics can go so severely interfere with the Grey Wardens' ability to function, since Grey Wardens, who happened to be in Orlais, were being refused the ability to, to enter Ferelden and deal with the Blight, because they happened to be in Orlais, or because they happened to be Orlesians. And therefore they were presumed to have a political agenda, even though they may not have, and I have to add may because we don't know. Uh, Riordan definitely didn't have an agenda, I think we could say that fairly solidly. <laughs> so you can see the problems here. And the idea of <laughs> maintaining this organization is just, it's got to be a hassle and a half. I would not want to be any Grey Warden commander during a non-blight, during a peacetime era, because it's just, oh god. Because you need to keep, you need to keep your finances going somehow, to keep the organization going somehow, because if you just let it go to raw, and then a new blight happens, congratulations, you're screwed. Especially important because the main way that the Grey Wardens help in future blights is because they know they're happening. They know they're coming. They can sense an archdemon. Ergo, being able to, they can start responding immediately. By contrast, the first blight, when nobody really knew what the Darkspawn were, and nobody really knew how to deal with them, and nobody could kill the archdemons, that first blight ravaged a huge amount of territory and killed countless lives because they weren't prepared. Thus, any Grey Warden who is smart knows they have to keep going to prevent that from happening again. I find myself wondering, to relate to Inquisition for a minute, how much the Grey Wardens deliberately stay political, deliberately get involved in political affairs, and literally hire themselves out as mercenary groups in order to keep the organization going just to prevent that from happening. A very pragmatic choice, but a very nuanced one too, if you ask me. <sighs> Lyrium is the next thing I want to talk about. Lyrium... Obviously, we... <laughs> Actually, you know what? I take that back, because I don't really want to talk about Lyrium, because most of what we learn about Lyrium, we learn about in the future, uh, in future games. In this game, all we know about Lyrium is it's something that grows underground, and it contains literal magic, that it's basically mana, or ether, or aether, or whatever you want to call it. But the thing about Lyrium 
is lyrium has to be folded very carefully and precisely into something to make enchantments. It's mentioned to be incredibly boring and take forever and require very very careful and precise precision. Which is why tranquils exist, of course, and for no other reason whatsoever. Okay. If we're going to talk about tranquils, unfortunately, we have to talk about Dragon Age 2, because Dragon Age 2 is one of the only times when someone who was tranquil is cured or more accurately, temporarily reconnected with their soul, from being tranquil, and then put back. And that person was begging for death as a mercy. And then they went back to being their tranquil self. I think based on that, and a few other tidbits here and there, we can safely say that being tranquil means you are effectively a prisoner in your own body, fully aware, and not capable of doing anything, that you are no longer in control, that you simply become a voice box that responds to commands. One of the things that is emphasized several times in this game and others is the fact that a tranquil basically has to follow orders. There's a few tidbits around that, but in general, if you tell a Tranquil to do something, they have to, which is one of the reasons why the Tranquil solution over in Dragon Age 2 is so damn terrifying and disgusting. This also means that any given Tranquil is basically the perfect slave. I know that sounds horrible, but you can kind of see it, and again, we get into this nuanced thing again. This is very dark gray, but this is still gray, because even ignoring the obvious, incredibly obvious possibilities for abuse when it comes to tranquility, we also have a pragmatic perspective here. You, let's presume for a moment that you have a mage, and this mage is a criminal, a bad criminal, someone who is really awful. So, okay, we could kill them, or we could turn them into a tranquil. Turning them into a tranquil basically turns them into a useful resource. They are now a diligent worker who will do whatever they are told and has the ability to do things, mundane little things that other people have problems doing because they get bored. But a tranquil doesn't get bored. It's mentioned one of the reasons the tranquils are so good at enchantment is because the meticulous and time-consuming effort of relaying this lyrium over and over and over and over and over for hours on end doesn't bother them. And a tranquil doesn't need to rest or sleep. They could just do this for hours, days, if necessary, in order to make this product. And, of course, they can then sell these enchantments and make money to fund the circle. And you can kind of see the pragmatic side of that, which brings up the most important question when it comes to tranquils. Do you think the, that the people who are making them tranquil, you know, the lead Templars and the head mages, do you think they know... I asked this question on stream, too, and I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, as always. Do you think they know that they are consigning these people to what is effectively a living hell? That this is one of the most terrible and nightmarish things that you could ever experience, and that this experience is, is just a waking, endless, screaming hell? Do you think they know that? Bonus question. If they did, do you think they'd stop? I like to think that some circles would be a lot more circumspect about using tranquility if they knew its consequence. Like I said earlier, you've got a really bad mage. Okay, tranquil. Boom. Problem solved. But I don't think they'd use it for someone who, for example, doesn't make the cut or can't complete the harrowing, which is something that's mentioned to be done in this very game. Just a thought. I suppose this is a good time to talk about Jowen. Jowen is a blood mage. Now, this is never confirmed 100%, and it, it probably never will be since we were supposed to get him as an actual playable character, and that content was cut, but 
based on the evidence, one of the things we learn is that Aldrin later on is actively going out of his way to recruit people into into his own you know political camp basically, and teaching them blood magic, and then in order to maintain his own standing with the rest of the circle, occasionally selling out one of those people as a blood mage. Now, there's a lot of flaws with this uh, perspective, of course, but at the same time, who are you going to believe? Some random, you know, blood mage who is a blood mage, who is a provable blood mage, who is like, oh my god, Aldred, he totally taught me this. Or are you going to believe Aldred, who is a well-respected leader of the mages and one of their chief uh, operatives and associates? In fact, I think he's like two steps below the first enchanter. Two or one. You can kind of see why his plan sort of works. It is mentioned several times, it, it is hinted several times that Jowan himself was one of these consequences of Aldred's pro policies of just making blood mages then occasionally selling one out. It also helps to explain something during the Mage Origin. During the Mage Origin, everyone says with total certainty that Jowan is a blood mage, and yet he shows absolutely no signs of being a blood mage whatsoever until he is finally pushed into a corner and does it to, to escape. Why would they be so certain if there's basically, if there's literally no evidence of it? Now, you could argue that this is something to catch the player off guard, but I think it's because they knew, they were told with certainty by Aldred and then just took it as fact. I mean, why would they question him on that? He is a blood mage. And as it happens, it's true. So it's one of those easily provable things once pushed into a corner. That being said, I want to talk briefly about Jowan just, just for a bit here. I know we don't really encounter him again until Redcliffe, so hear me out. I like to think that Jowan is someone who is amazingly incompetent, but not really a bad person. Just someone who doesn't think and can't think. You know what I mean? Like someone who is like, oh, God, I just want something simple or normal or whatever, but I can't have it. Oh, God, I'll, I guess I'll do this. Is this what I have to do? He, in other words, he is taken advantage of and basically used and abused by those around him who choose to do so. The most obvious examples being Aldred, possibly, and Loghain, definitely. And he's like, okay, I have to murder this person for the king. I mean, okay, I guess that's okay. It sounds awful, but I'll go ahead and give him this poison. Sure. Okay, now that I've done that. Oh, they caught me. And now they're torturing me. Why are they torturing me? What did I do? <laughs> right? One of the things that makes me most exasperated about Jowan is the fact that if you question him about it at Redcliffe, he will say his big motivation for doing all this is, I just wanted to go home. I just wanted to be allowed to return and go back to my life, to the way things were. <laughs> Which is so stupid. I mean, it's kind of understandable. He's basically a kid who was massively in over his head. He wants to go back to his normal life, except his normal life is never coming back. He's a blood mage first problem. A proven blood mage, I might add, with many, many uh, people who can attest to that. And there's the fact that he fled from the circle in order, you know, he's an outlaw and, and, and maleficarum, technically, but more accurately an apostate. And um, I mentioned earlier the no exceptions problem, right? Then there's the fact that uh, even if somehow they were to make it so the Templars won't slit his throat in the middle of the night, I don't think most of the other people there are going to be kindly disposed to someone who they know is a blood mage. But no, he just wants to go back home. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Fade really quicker while we're on it. Um, 
one of the things that I like about this game is the fact that they give you a lot of information about the Fade, and yet there's still a lot of things we don't know about it. Now, a lot of the nature of the Fade, and most importantly, the Veil, is actually covered in future games. What we do know based on this game is the idea that the Fade is metaphysically connected with the whole world, and thus the world can affect it just as it can affect the world. We know from future games that it's possible to physically enter the Fade, which isn't a surprise, but until then we basically do more of a mental journey into the Fade, you know, shifting your, your, your consciousness through the veil, basically, in order to get into there. Which can be done willingly through a lot of lyrium, uh, willingly through a lot of blood magic, unwillingly through blood magic, and of course unwillingly through demons. Which brings me to my next point. Demons and spirits. Now, I've argued for years, and apparently this, is ba this has kind of become true in recent time uh, with some of the recent lore. I've argued for years that the only difference between a demon and a spirit is intent and mentality. It's, it's like a political faction rather than a completely separate entity. Demons have a strong invested interest in mortals, in people, because they want to experience the world. They want something, and they want to express that something, and use that something, and feel that something, and do that something. And that means getting out to the rest of the world, you know, possessing someone or making a bargain with someone or, you know, usurping someone, which is what an abomination really is. An abomination, just because I didn't really cover that already, is when a, a mage is basically destroyed and what's left of their body is turned into a vessel for a demon. This is actually important because when we actually see Aldred, when we encounter him towards the end of the tower, that's not Aldred anymore. That's just the pride demon who has taken over his body. Um... I love his speech, by the way. The mage is just a larval form for something greater. Yeah, okay, stab. <laughs> Demons, of course, because of that want, that desire, if you will, it makes sense for why they would be so interacting with humans, and why most of those things would be very negative, since they don't actually care about the humans in any positive sense. They only care about them so much as they can use them. I say humans. I should say mortals, to be more accurate. There's plenty of races in this game. Not, I'm not trying to be human-centric. <laughs> Spirits, by contrast, well, they still have the same thing going, except more internalized. They may adhere to a specific mentality or reason or whatever. Spirit of faith, spirit of justice, spirit of valor, for example. But all of these spirits, nevertheless, can find their own... Basically, can feel that and be that aspect and be that essence of themselves or with their interactions with another. In other words, the only real thing that differentiates a demon from a spirit is their interaction with mortals. One thing I will note, though, there are many, many different types of spirits, but we only really see, like, a handful of different types of demons, that we only see certain types of, of concepts being made into demons, or demons being made into, depending on how you define that. I sometimes wonder about that. It's obvious from a gameplay perspective why they wanted to establish a hierarchy, that, you know, anger demon will always weak, be weaker than uh, desire, will be weaker than sloth, sloth will be weaker than pride, with pride at the top. That makes a degree of sense, especially, again, from a gameplay perspective. But I find myself wondering if there's something else in lore that is kind of guiding certain emotions or certain concepts into demons, this crafting multiple pride demons, multiple desire demons, etc. Because, I mean, the only thing we might have an example of for a multiple when it comes to spirits is two faith spirits, and even that's debatable. <sighs> Anyways, having said that, uh, I'm looking at my notes here just really quick. <laughs> One of the things I found funny is that there's jails 
in the tower. If you go when you're going down, when you're helping uh, Jowan and what's her face, uh, Lily, when you're helping Jowan and Lily out, you know, there's several jail cells with blood. Of course, there's blood. And I was looking at it like, hmm. I suppose it makes a lot of sense for them to have some kind of a prison thing. They have to have some place to imprison people, like Anders, you know, mages who go bad. I also wonder if they put apostates in there. I also wonder if they put new recruits in there. Remember that anyone who is found to be a mage, no exceptions, has to go to a circle, regardless of what age they are. And obviously a child isn't going to be tossed into jail. But what about someone who's like 30 and is like, Hey, oh, you're a mage? To the circle with you. I could kind of see how that could lead to some bad circumstances and how they might need to need choose to imprison someone like that. It just adds another aspect to the whole gilded cage thing. You can stay down here where it's dank and horrible, or you can stay up here where it's nice. If you if if you follow the rules, you're still not allowed to leave though. Just as a heads up, Duncan is awesome. <laughs> I just want to talk about Duncan really quick. Duncan really is an awesome character. He strikes me as someone who, and I have a note here. He strikes me as a moral pragmatist. He's, in other words, he is someone who does believe in his own concept of right and wrong, good and bad. But he believes that pragmatism is more important than that. So he will do the right thing, but he'll do the political thing if he has to. There are several circumstances in which he uh, portrays this. Probably the most obvious one being the way he recruits you in almost all of the origins. I'm going to talk briefly now about the origins just really quick. I mentioned earlier, I got this question like 20 times, so I'm going to go ahead and answer this question here. Uh, my favorite origins in rough order are Dwarf Noble, Dwarf Commoner, um, Human Noble, probably, uh, I'd say probably Mage next, and then City Elf, and then uh, Dalish Elf, roughly in that order. That, that, that's a little malleable of a list. But the two Dwarf Origins are definitely my favorite by far. Those are awesome. Oh, did, I, did I mention Human Noble? I'm sorry, Dwarf, Dwarf, Human Noble. If I didn't put mention it, I'm sorry. Either way, let's talk about these. So the Dalish origin was a nice kind of, you know, the, it felt like you were someone who was out in the wilds. And I know that sounds like a duh, but what I mean by that is the whole tone of it is this is this huge, vast, and dangerous world which we barely know anything about, which we're just beginning to explore, and we can barely process what's going on. Um, and that is one of, one of the more common themes throughout the work. There's a lot of hinting at a greater and more dangerous world out there that they don't really do a lot of fleshing out of in this game. Obviously, future games do. The, the the entire thing about the Illuvion is an excellent example of that. And, of course, Meryl is there. The other thing, really quick, before I continue, because I don't have much to say about the Dalish origin. It's, well, there's a reason it's my least favorite. But the other thing I want to mention really quick is I've, I've always loved the idea, and I don't know if this is 100% canon or not, that Duncan, obviously, whichever origin you are is the one that is canon, but with, the only thing that's different is basically that all of the origins are canon. It's just the only difference is which one Duncan was in. So the Dwarf Noble always existed, but without Duncan there to save him, right? The Mage always existed, but without Duncan there to save him. You get my point. Thus, without Duncan being there to recruit you to the Grey Wardens, most of the origin characters all existed and met an unfortunate end. Brings me to my next point, City Elf. Now, some people ask why I don't like City Elf. Um, if you are asking that, you've never played City Elf. 
I love Dragon Age Origins, but there are a couple of times it crosses the line for me into unacceptable, and City Elf Origin is one of those times. In fact, the first time I ever, ever, ever played this game, as I mentioned before, as I was going through all the Origins first, I think I did City Elf last. Uh, it was City Elf or Dalish Elf, but I know after doing that, I put the game down. I didn't want to play it. It disgusted me to the point where I said, nope. That's not cool. And I just walked away from it. I didn't play Dragon Age Origins again until my friend Pax basically was like, dude, you need to play this game. It's really good. And I'm like, no, dude. God. No, you got to play it. It's really good. Ah, you know. Big back and forth thing. I don't have much to say about City Elf other than that. We don't have a lot of relevance. So the Dalish Elf has a minor amount of relevance. All the, all the origins only have a minor amount of relevance. The only two real big ones being uh, noble, uh, human noble and mage, regardless of race. Because mage basically has an entire section devoted to them, and human noble has a lot of personal interactions that matter when it comes to the main villains, notably um, Loghain and uh, our good friend... Oh, God, I can't think of his name all of a sudden. Oh, that's going to bother me. Hang on, i got to look up his name. I'm referring to Rendon Howe, but that's not the name I was going to name drop there. I'm just going to look something up here really quick. Rendon Howe. Tim Curry! Couldn't think of Tim Curry's name. It's always a name I know and like that I can never think of. Anyways. City, uh, City Elf, though, i got to say one other quick thing about it. I did like the construction of the events up to a point, but one of the things I found most interesting about City Elf, if I'm to just de detach myself for a moment, is the fact that when you go after the bastard, he offers to pay you off. And you have the option to accept that. <laughs> I, I know that sounds horrible, but I do like that it's an option. I do like that the game lets you play someone who is despicable. At least about this one thing. Or is you know, pragmatic. I mean, this money could do a lot of good, maybe. You know, there's, there's a lot of different ways to slant that. I also like the fact that the game allows you to murder his stupid face. <laughs> That's also very enjoyable. Mage Origin, which is, of course, the one I played through this one, is... It's basically a typical RPG thing. That's one of the reasons why it's kind of in the middle for me. There's nothing really wrong with it. But if Mage Origin was the only origin, it would fit very, very well. It's just kind of typical, you're a mage, and you go through this, and here's some world building, and here's some character building, and then, oh, crap! Oh, okay, you're caught. But you're saved, you know. There's not a lot to say about it, other than the stuff I've already said about, you know, the mages and the tower and all that fun stuff. It's kind of all separate topics. I do want to comment one other thing about Mage Origin, though. In my opinion, Mage Origin has the most, uh, let's call it references, in the main game. Now, almost all of that is in the tower section of the game. But they constantly reference, oh, it's you, or what are you doing back here? How's this going? Or, do you remember me? And so forth and so on. And a lot of those interactions change based on the fact that you're you, most notably with, uh, with Cullen, especially if you're female. By contrast, most of the other origins only really serve for like a couple... Dwarf Noble is a great example. You talk to your second, uh, or first. God, it's been a while. You talk, you talk, you talk to uh, Steve Blum, who's only five, selling fine dwarven crap in... Uh, or, uh, not Orzammar. Uh, Denerim. But that's kind of it. That's the only real interaction you get. As a mage, you get continuous interactions throughout the whole tower, which I did like. 
which I suppose we'll go ahead and segue into talking about Human Noble. Human Noble is really good. Like, really, really good. There's a lot of nuanced stuff there. You can play a spoiled brat. You can play a evil bastard. You can play a war-hungry bastard. You can play someone who's a dutiful child. You can play a really good person. You have a lot of options for playing your, your noble character. And you will get some interesting feedback from your family members, who will, of course, all die because it's a Dragon Age game. One of the things I find uh, most weird about the human noble origin, though, is that Howe's move is so overt and so obvious, I'm a little astonished he got away with it. The only reason I can even presume that he came close to getting away with that is because there was another issue. In fact, there were two. There was the Darkspawn, and then there was a Civil War. If it wasn't for those two problems, it's, it's mentioned that there is actual conflict, actual fighting going on in the background as far as the Civil War goes. I, fe- I really strongly feel like if it wasn't for those two things, he would have never succeeded in taking the Kuslins, or Kauslins, however they said that, uh, land. Like, it's, it's just such an overt power move. Ah, ha, ha, you have been ousted as traitors, stab, stab, stab. This is all mine now. You know, it's such an, uh, an obvious power grab. There is a lot of nuance in that section of the game, though, and a lot of uh, chance to interact with NPCs who you'll never see again, but have a surprising amount of characterization to them, which brings me, of course, to Dwarf Commoner. Now, Dwarf Commoner, I admit I don't remember all that well. I didn't replay it for this particular rumination. In fact, I only played the mage one because time is always my enemy. However, what I remember most about Dwarf Commoner is the fact that it's a wonderful insight into half of the Dwarven culture. You play a castless. You play someone who is... Well, I'll talk more about the castless and the dwarves in general when we get to the dwarven section. You get a very upfront and personal perspective on exactly what it means to be castless. On exactly how irrelevant you are. And exactly how disposable you are. And exactly how integral you are to the continued function of dwarven society. I love seeing that underbelly. I love seeing how it supports the, the the far more polished society above it. And I love the fact that once again, you can choose which kind of you know bastard you want to be. Which brings me, of course, to Dwarf Noble, my favorite origin by far. Love the Dwarf Noble stuff. There's so much great stuff there. It's probably one of the most nuanced story arcs. It also, of course, is chock full of politics and culture and lore. Of course I love it. A lot of what I'm going to talk about later when it comes to the dwarves and their nature is going to come from the dwarf noble origin. But in addition to that, I also love the fact that your brother, or, you know, you know Balin, basically, is someone who comes across as the kind and considerate and understanding one. And I mention that because I feel like it's too rare too often fiction will portray a scheming politician type, whether they're corporate or government, as someone who is slimy and unlikable. Balin comes across as very charismatic, someone who actually would get along with people. Which makes more sense. His charisma score, if you'll forgive me for putting it that, should be higher. So it makes sense that he would come across as that. He should be the kind of person who gets along with people, and only reveals the, the rougher side of him when he doesn't need to. Of course, he also basically completely manipulates us into a corner and in order to remove us as a potential player for the throne, since it was going to be ours, let's be honest. I look at that and I think, 
I don't know. I, I think of how normal and typical that must be for dwarven society. The idea that, you know, it doesn't matter. You friends, cousins, brothers, whatever, all have to manipulate and maneuver each other as much as they have to, as much as they need to, in order to jockey for position and very survival. Because if you don't, they will. And then you'll be screwed and probably killed. One of the other things I like, just very quick side note about Balin, because Balin shows up briefly in the Dwarf Commoner, in the background of the Dwarf Commoner story as well, is that Balin isn't a completely horrible person. He is ruthless and, frankly, rather immoral, but he also genuinely believes in what, in doing what's best for the dwarves. He's a very progressive kind of a person. And he's also pretty nice to the people he does care about when he doesn't have to kill them for political expediency. What I'm trying to say is that I have the very strong impression, and I could be wrong, that Balin would actually be a good guy, a hero, if you will, if not for the society into which he was born, the dwarven nobility. <sighs> let's talk about uh, let's get back to Duncan so Duncan recruits you um, I mentioned his pragmatism I want to touch on that very briefly again here because he he probably has as much fear of the mages as anybody and lord knows that darkspawn and majory kind of cross signals a little bit but he mentions how he wants a, wants a mage in every contingent I mention that because to Duncan, this just seems like a fairly simple scenario. While this is a dangerous circumstance, and I have to politically dance in order to make it happen, having this many mages will help. In fact, I almost guarantee you that if Duncan actually had more combat mages at Ostagar, despite Loghain's choice, they would have fared a lot better in that battle. Mages, again, glass cannon. Or, to put it into another military term, think of mages as artillery. You keep them in the back, you keep them protected, they will do a lot to change the outcome of a battle. But he only had a few. Only had a handful. <sighs> um, there's also two other things that I mentioned about Duncan that really struck me this time. One is, Cal uh, one is Alistair, and one is the scrolls. He asks for us to go get these scrolls from a nearby thing in Darkspawn-infested territory in order to have, you know, written record of the fact that lots of people signed, you know, treaties saying, we will help the Grey Wardens. To me, that feels very long-term planning for Duncan, and also probably highlights kind of in a very quiet and subtle... I'm giving too much credit for it. It doesn't beat you over the head with the exposition, but it gets across its point. The point being, people aren't really supporting the Grey Wardens the way they should. But that was already mentioned with the, the the mages. This is also mentioned when, you know, Kaelin, which I'll talk about in a second, is just kind of, eh, we got this. And, of course, having those actual treaties and being able to use them is the kind of thing that would enable him to say, hey, uh, we need support. This is a blight. Come here. Given the fact that Duncan himself was already hearing the calling, which we find out later, there's a better than even chance that he wanted to make sure these papers were in the hands of his Grey Wardens to make sure that they could spread the word as necessary. Since Duncan's word obviously does have a lot of weight, since he's a well-known character in this area. Which brings me, of course, to the other thing he did, Alistair. Alistair complains, and again, this is not super subtle exposition, but it is good, well-done exposition. Alistair complains about the fact that he was held back from the front lines and coddled by Duncan, ensuring that he would not be killed. Now, Alistair complains about that because he's like, I'm a warrior, I could do this. 
I like to think that Duncan is smart enough to recognize the succession crisis that would happen if Kaelin died. And having Alistair right there, ready to go, would basically nip that succession crisis in the bud, at least for now. Later on, eh, we could debate this a little bit more, but making sure that Alistair is safe and secure was a very smooth and, frankly, intelligent way of saying, okay, with this, we have a new king. No need to go to battle, let's go fight the Darkspawn. Just my opinion on that. Let's talk about Kalen. Kalen is one of those debatables. Now, I brought that up during stream, and someone was like, What? Whoever talked about Kalen? I find Kalen fascinating because I have heard people debate his character for years, and as ever, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on Kalen in particular. Is Kalen someone who is. God, I just realized I just reached Oscar. How long have I been talking? I've been talking for an hour and 12 minutes. Oh my god, I'm never going to finish this. My throat's going to be dead by the end of this rumination. Kaelin is someone who could be perceived as a complete blundering idiot. Uh, someone who is smart when it comes to politics and stupid when it comes to military strategy. Or someone who's a glory hound and feels cloistered by his royal life. Or someone who's just a puppet on Celine's strings. Or uh, There's a lot of different interpretations here. One of the things that Loghain... Loghain makes a very, very clear lack of respect for Kaelin in every scene where Kaelin uh, is brought up around Loghain. And I mention that because respect is a big deal to Loghain. In fact, his respect of you is one of the only reasons he finally yields towards the end of the game. I also mention that because some people have seemed to take it as red that Celine was going to marry Kaelin and then the two were going to do their whole thing and blah, blah, blah. That's not necessarily true. That is only Loghain's interpretation. And remember, Loghain was someone who insisted the Grey Wardens were a threat to his rule because they happened to be Orlesian. So, that being said, it is worth noting that ancillary works have since fleshed out the fact that the or there are plenty of Orlesians, in fact, multiple separate factions of Orlesians, who were, in fact, planning and plotting in order to try and reclaim Ferelden, some nicely and some otherwise. And I have to point out from a political perspective that a Selene and Kaelin married, that would be probably one of the most peaceful, um, less horrible ways to unite those countries into a singular country again. You know, making a new country out of it, in other words. I'm not necessarily saying that would be a good thing. I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that could have been a maneuver that both were in favor of. Let's, let's deal, let's put aside all our old hatreds and literally have a new future together. Eh. Regardless. So Davith and Jory. Now one of the things I like most about Davith and Jory is, uh, the two of them really serve, first of all, they both die. <laughs> this is the last time a Bioware game really caught me by surprise when it came to your recruited character dying early on. Like, from this point on, I was just waiting for it, right? And in fact, since I played uh, Mass Effect after this, which I think I've mentioned before, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Go ahead, Sergeant... Uh, I can't think of his name now. The, the guy at the beginning of Mass Effect, the one who dies horribly. You know what I'm talking about. Uh... But I did like both of them because they're a good insight into what you could call typical adventuring party types. You've got the rogue who's a decent guy and who has, you know, the right of it. You know, he flat out says, you know, the rogue with a heart of gold, basically. And he flat out says, you know, what about your pretty wife back home? Wouldn't you be willing to go out and die? Wouldn't you be willing to fight and get, lay down your life to save them? And then you have the knight who's all about the glory. 
he actually won a proving in order to be qualified to become a Grey Warden. And of course, as I mentioned before, the Grey Wardens are well-known and well-established throughout the entirety of the setting. So anybody would be like, Aha, yes, I shall be a Grey Warden, and I shall... Wait, wait, you want me to drink from a cup that may kill me? His line says everything about his mentality. There's no glory in this. For years I've heard people debate what Duncan does next. I am on Duncan's side for two very important reasons. Number one, and I talked about this during the lore run as well. So, number one, he draws his weapon on Duncan first. Duncan does not draw his weapon until he is already being threatened with a sword. So then he, okay, yep, and then he guts him. And it's very clear he does not want to do this. This is not some kind of murderous evil intent. At best, this is callousness. The fact that he... I have to say really quick, this would be solved a lot easier if just everyone drank at the same time. I mean, seriously. Funnily enough, we'll never know if he would have survived or not. The other reason, though, is because of desertion. Now, I, I stopped to talk about the very concept of desertion for like 40 minutes during the lore run or some insane amount. I'm not going to do that again here. All I'm going to say is that desertion is a very serious problem that does have to be dealt with very seriously in a, a total war scenario in a military environment. And this applies in all of those cases. The Darkspawn are a severe, immediate military threat that has to be dealt with. And what Jory did... Or Davith. Actually, I don't remember which is which right now. Please forgive me. But, you know, what he did was basically desertion. Nope. I'm out. That being said, I wonder if Duncan would have let him go if he hadn't drawn his weapon. If he had just turned and ran. I sometimes wonder that, because I'm not sure he would have killed him. In fact, I'd like to think he wouldn't have. But again, I'm not sure, because he drew his weapon, so we'll never actually know. I'm looking at my notes here. Let's talk about something else that I don't think I've brought up before. I want you to imagine a scenario. During the meeting, we see that there's one of the Chantry Mothers there, and Uldred, the representative for the mages. Wynne is there too, but she's over on the side. So Uldred says, we don't need to use the tower. We don't need to have them back there. All you need to do is have our mages send up a signal. Now, he is immediately slapped down by the Chantry lady, but imagine if he wasn't for a second. Given that we know with total certainty that Aldred and Loghain have been in cahoots before this incident and will coordinate again later, is it not interesting to think that they were working together in this moment? Because picture the scenario for a second. In, there's no tower. There's no lighting the beacon. Instead, there's just the mages who are going to send up a signal. Aldred and his mages don't send up the signal. And then when they flee back, they're like, oh, God, I, I couldn't do it. You know, the mages, the darkspawn, you know, that is a thing. Darkspawns do interrupt with magic in a way. So we just couldn't make it happen. And we couldn't summon the reinforcements. And Loghain's like, oh, my God. And the whole thing would have gone off perfectly. And Loghain would have succeeded in his whole plan. And then he would have taken over with relatively less problems. I'll talk about that later. And then... Well, and then we would all be dead because he would go after the Grey Wardens, most likely, and, you know, because the whole Orlesian thing, and thus no Grey Warden would kill the Archdemon, so they wouldn't be able to stop it, and we'd have a blight, like a real blight. The blight in this game is not a real blight. This is the very beginning of one. It's actually a plot point in later games. Food for thought. I also mention here, the Archdemon's tactics are interesting, because the Archdemon sends not only Darkspawn behind the rear, but also quite a few Darkspawn specifically to the tower, that's always bothered me a little bit. 
Like, we know that Archdemon can use tactical you know, prowess, and we know that's a thing. But why would the Archdemon specifically send anybody to the tower? Now, I do have a small answer for this. One of the things we know is that the Archdemon, the more you progress through your own being a Grey Warden, the more you can hear the Archdemon. It has been implied that the Archdemon can hear back, too. One of the things that I always like to think on this one is that the Archdemon got at least a little bit of the plan from Duncan's mind, specifically, and thus knew that the beacon was important, the tower was important. Maybe not the specifics of why, but just that it was important to their enemy. So, a whole bunch of Darkspawn go around and take out the tower from behind. It would also be a good tactical decision regardless, because it would mean that instead of funneling into this death trap, they would now have troops behind, with superior ground, no less. But I digress. So then Loghain sounds the retreat. Question. I'm just now getting to my... I have three pages of notes. I'm just now getting to my second page. Question. Do you think Loghain always planned to retreat or not? I've never heard a definitive answer to this. Because one of the things that's been speculated on, myself included, is that Loghain always was ready to retreat, but that that was not his primary plan. That was more like his backup. He was going to see how the battle was going and how Kaelin reacted to certain things and it, it, just trying to test the waters. And then if things go badly, okay, fine, sound the retreat, we're out. Just something to mention there. <sighs> Loghain has an excellent scene after, which really helps to showcase what kind of a person Loghain is. I admit it's brilliantly written because it's it's a very clear example of Babylon 5 effect. In other words, the first time it appears to be X, but then the second time you realize it's Y because of how well written it is. The first time I assumed Loghain was a raving, evil, megalomaniacal, evil person who was evil. You know, it, in fact, it actually was bothering me. I'm like, oh my god, we have a blight! What are you doing? You know, stop playing for power. Stop trying to do this power grab thing. On replay, you can see a lot more of Loghain's mentality and what's going on. Everything he does actually makes a large amount of sense from his perspective, which is flawed, but nevertheless makes sense if you presume what he presumes is correct. Remember, he doesn't know about the significance of the Grey Wardens and their usage in defeating the Archdemon, and he's basically insane when it comes to Orlay. My personal favorite example of this is in this cutscene, which is why I wanted to mention it here. Loghain is now, okay, I am regent. That means I am the head of the armies. So we need to build up a new army and we need to go deal with the Blight. Let's go deal with the Blight right now. Let's go. Now that makes sense. If everyone had just done that, ignoring the Archdemon problem for a second, so let's assume the Archdemon is killable by anything. Let's just presume that, which is what Loghain presumes. So, if everyone, if all the Banorns had just said, yeah, okay, and raised up their new levies and charged with him to war, he probably would have nipped the Blight in the bud right then and there. He is a brilliant tactical general. It's mentioned many, many times, and he himself is a tremendous warrior and really good on the battlefield. But well, Loghain is not as charismatic. Loghain cannot play at politics. Loghain cannot play at people. He has no ability to stir the hearts of those beneath him and to inspire loyalty. That was Merrick's job, right? Merrick's dead. There's a wonderful line, The Bannorn will not bow simply because you demand it. Loghain's response to that is very Loghain. 
not diplomatic, not polite, and not charismatic. He just says, I have not shirked my due to the crown, and neither will you. Because that's how he presumes. It's so obvious to him. Why are you pushing back? God, these guys, are, there's a blight going on. Come on, we got to go deal with this blight. Right? It is his daughter, Honora, who has more political savvy. And, well, she's currently being dead and horrible, so. <laughs> I hate Honora. We'll get to that later. So we get to the first town. I only have a couple of notes. We're going to speed up a little bit, I swear, because now we're going to be covering more uh, topics in region rather than going over all the concepts of the setting as a whole. So most of this is just individual notes. But for example, we get to uh, we get to the... Uh, oh my god, I didn't write down the name of the town, so I'm trying to just remember it. Um, yeah, I give up. We come to Lothering. There it is. I knew it. I just had to think of Claudia Black... She says it. She says Lothering. She says, she, God, I love her voice. She's a wonderful voice actress in this game. So we see a lot of sides of how normal people react. Lothering is a great, uh, it serves a great purpose, gameplay design-wise, what I would usually refer to as level design in this story. Because we've just had the heavy. There's been a lot of establishment, origins, all of the origins except kind of Dalish, but all of the origins to some extent do a lot of establishing the setting, making you understand where you are and what's going on. And then you kind of get introduced to some of the major players, uh, the big ones, of course, being Alistair and Morrigan, but also other ones like Duncan, Kaelin, and you know, a few others specific to Origins. Then the heavy hits. Pergong. Oh, there's also an insane amount of foreshadowing at Ostagar. If you really pay attention, there is a ton of stuff there, which is all either NPCs or lead-ups to other NPCs or other characters or other plot points, which come up later. Tons of it all over the place. I mean, wins there, as I mentioned earlier. Anyways... Then, Pukong, oh god, the battle has happened and the blight has been defeated and now we're saved in order to go try and basically start from scratch. So then we get to Lothering. And Lothering is just a little town with little problems. It's basically the real tutorial to the game. It's like, okay, now you've had, now we've had tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of establishment. Now here, here's, here's something to make you figure out how to play the game itself. So the first thing we see is the bandits, and we get introduced to the idea that based on your interactions and dialogues, you can choose how an encounter goes. You can piss them off, you can appeal to them, you can defeat them, you can kill him, you can spare him, etc. There's a lot of different options. Nice tutorial in that respect. Then we get the, the banter tutorial. Now this is the funniest one to me. Anybody who's played this game will know exactly what I'm talking about. In Lothering, there's a bridge going over a little creek right in the middle. In that bridge is a little trigger line. Which means every time you cross that trigger line, a party banter is triggered. And then whoever's in your party, which is probably just Morgan and Alistair to start, but can also include Sten and Liliana, and the Mabari, actually, will say something, and will start to do one of their party banters. The party banter is an excellent part of this game, and something that I feel was actually integral to it being as good as it is, because it helps to flesh out each of the characters tremendously. It's also probably one of the things that Bioware not only has been good at, but remained good at for a lot of their existence. Please forgive me. For some reason, my throat's hurting a lot. I can't imagine why. I, I told myself when I went into this that I was going to throw myself into this to truly make this a proper remake rumination. I know the whole point of a rumination is for it to be shorter than a lore run, but whatever. Moving on. <clears throat> so then you meet the merchant. The merchant's another good example of using skills, basically. In this case, dialogue skills. Do you have a high enough persuasion check to convince him to sell here for less? Or you could side with him, or you could side with her. 
this is again sh more than the bandits really this is showcasing how there's multiple avenues to complete a quest again a nice tutorial because a lot of quests in this game have many 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 different permutations of how they could happen i mean yeah sure one way or another you're going to side with bronca or you're going to side with uh Keridin. but there's a lot of different side things of you could side with him but do this or side with her but do this throughout the course of the game and this is true for even minor quests not just major ones Next thing, of course, you see is the Wildman Survivor, who starts talking about the blight that's coming and establishes the whole point. Lothering is about to be stampeded over and smushed by the blight horde, which is you know slowly advancing north, which is why people are evacuating and dealing with it how they can. Which, of course, brings me to the next two things they do here very well. They show a lot of how normal people, how low ground of the earth people, are dealing with the idea that there's this overwhelming darkspawn horde coming. One of the things we learn is that the local lord's army is gone, that Loghain basically forcibly recruited it on his way out, and thus these people are defenseless. Not that they probably would have been able to push back a darkspawn horde. Anyways, but you get my point. So we get to see people who are freaking out, who are being abusive, who are being biased, or who are being helpful, or trying to help others, and just a lot of in-between, a lot of lot of brushstrokes, a lot of brushstrokes. And there's a lot of skill quests. I mentioned the persuasion stuff, but there's also, do you know anything about herbalism? And if you happen to have herbalism, then you can do this herbalism quest. Do you happen to know anything about making poisons? And so forth and so on. Again, getting you used to the ideas of the, the side quests, the money money gathering stuff. And of course, we get two new we get two new people there. We get Sten and we get Liliana. We also, uh, this is also kind of really hammers in the point, uh, one of the, the standard Bioware writing points, and that's the idea that there is more going on than is presented on the surface. Liliana is a, I'm actually bleeding a little bit, I'm so dry, holy crap. Liliana is someone who appears to be this nice, ah, we can all get along and we'll all be friends. And she's literally a member of the Chantry. Uh, spoiler alert, Liliana is also someone who used to be a rather bloodthirsty and uh, unpleasant assassin slash agent who used to do some pretty horrible things basically just because it was frickin' fun. Then we meet Sten, who's a murderer, who also happens to have layers to him and blah, blah, you get my point. <sighs> This is also when we're introduced to uh, Bodan, I believe his name is, the Dwarf Merchant. So then the camp. I want to talk about the camp next. The camp has ups and downs to it. The, the biggest up to the camp... Okay. The camp... There's only one camp. Even though the idea is that any time you're stopping for the night as you're trekking across the country, you're making camp. And... This is obviously one of the biggest examples of gameplay and story segregation that happens in the whole game. Because what they need, from a gameplay perspective, is they need the hub. They need the place you go to in order to interact with the other NPC, you know, other party members, and change out your inventory, and, you know, do the donation thing, and all the little mechanics that the camp functions as, gameplay-wise. But due to the nature of the narrative... We can't have a headquarters. We are hunted and hated by most people around here. So it's just the camp is our headquarters, in it, and we always happen to have all the people we need at our camp, no matter where we make that camp. Shrug. 
The other, uh, there's some good, you know, really good story stuff that happens. Most of the really awesome uh, banter and, and dialogue uh, with your party members happens at the camp. But that also kind of presents one of the negatives of the camp. In most of these games, it's very natural and logical to... Uh, let me use Mass Effect 1 as an example. Okay, you're at the Citadel, you go to the ship. You go to the sh and on the ship, you select to go to Novaria, and then you Novaria, and then you leave to the ship, and then you go to your next destination. You literally have to interact with the ship in each between points. So there's a natural way, a natural flow to the narrative uh, where you end up back at your ship in order to go run around and talk with your party members and do all the base camp stuff I just mentioned. There's no such real point in Dragon Age Origins. Occasionally it will force you to, but very rarely. For the most part, you have to go out of your way to go to the camp. This can lead to circumstances where, and I've heard this from several players, where you end up actually missing uh, bits of dialogue. Or I, When I was streaming it, I had a people saying, oh my god, I've never heard such and such dialogue before. Because you basically have to go out of your way to camp every time you do anything and just run around talking to everyone. And then you have to do it each at each step along the way. And that can get a little aggravating. Um, it would have been nice if some of the camp interactions were baked into the while you're walking around triggers. I know why they didn't do that. I understand the coding reason why they didn't do that, but it would have been nice and helped the flow tremendously. It's also one of the reasons why the camp is obviously just kind of a patch-fix solution to the problem they had here. Um, Sandal is there, of course. We all know Sandal's the maker. So let's talk about uh, Redcliffe which is the next place I usually go to. I almost always follow the exact same pattern uh, in Playstyle. Go to Redcliffe first, go to Mage's Tower second, finish Redcliffe, and then I do whatever in whatever order. I don't even remember the order I did this time. We'll see when I get there in my notes, because I wrote it in order in the notes. Redcliffe is such an obvious first place to go to. I do like you don't have to. You can go. You can do just about anything in any order. In fact, that is both a plus and a negative. In some circumstances, characters will say things that feel a little contradictory compared to things that have already happened to them or that they've already discovered or unveiled or whatever in other areas. Like, you can go to Orzammar first, and then you can go to Redcliffe, and then you can go to the Mage's Tower, and, you know, some of the dialogue from the characters there simply will not fit with the events that have already happened in your playthrough. The reason for this is most of the specific areas... Uh, f almost function within a, a vacuum. They're, 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 they're walled off. So all the stuff within Orzammar only really affects and changes Orzammar, and all of this is stuff in the, the Mage Tower only really affects the Mage Tower, and so forth and so on. There are some crossingovers here and there, and of course there's a lot of side quests which allow you to do stuff here and there, which is one of the reasons I know some people suggest you go to Denerim immediately to get a lot of those side quests. But the point is, this is simultaneously good and bad design. It's good because it does allow you to do whatever in whatever order. It also allows them to make your decisions matter more in the, in the little modular area you're in. Because again, your, cha your ch choices significantly affect and change the region you're going through, especially as you go through the main plotline in that area. But it's bad because it doesn't really affect anything else until we get to the end, which I'll talk about last. Um, so I go to Redcliffe. We see that a desired demon was summoned, unintentionally or otherwise, by Connor in order to make a facsimile of kinghood. Now, I find that interesting. The whole point of a desired demon is they give you what you want. We have the, the, the child with her cat. Uh, we have the Templar with his loving family. And we have Connor, who is a king. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. Obviously, the child of a... 
Okay, I actually have to rewind just a second here. I just realized. Because it can and has been argued that Connor himself didn't actually want to be king. It was more like Connor wanted to save his father, and the desired demon wanted to be king. This is a debatable... I personally think it's more logical that Connor himself wanted to be king because he is literally the son of a king. I mean, he's not the son of the king. You get my point. He's son of uh, Eamon. Arl Eamon. Someone who is a very powerful, wealthy, influential noble, and someone who has probably raised Connor, you know, like you do, in order to be a very wealthy and powerful and influential noble. So he's very accustomed to most of these ideas of ruling, just not the specifics and the, the nuances of them. This makes a lot of the interactions of the Desire Demon and the whole Redcliffe section make a lot more sense in hindsight. I shall send out my forces to conquer new territories and bring new lands unto my thing. And yes, I shall be able to have all this wealth. They will bring back the wealth and privilege, and you shall follow my commands and dance and sing for me, and you shall be at my very beck and call, and I shall be a just and good king. All that stuff, right? It all just kind of lines up uh, if you presume these things. I also love the idea that the Desire Demon only has partial control over Connor. Now, first of all, this is the nature of their contract. Connor is not literally an abomination. He is being possessed by a Desire Demon, but an abomination, again, to reiterate, is something where the, the mage is basically destroyed, that there is no Uldred anymore. There's just the demon. And we know Connor is still there, especially since we can rescue him. Um, and, again, having said all that now, it makes sense to me that this demon cannot maintain total control because he's a child. Because he's a kid. <laughs> I don't think they ever say his name. Maybe he's like 10, 12, I don't know. But the point being, if you are a child and you are seeing horrible, violent, deathy things happen right in front of you, that's scary. That's terrifying in a way that's hard to explain, especially to an adult. But it makes perfect sense if you think about it, right? And thus, his own actions terrify him from time to time, preventing the demon's control and just kind of interrupting it a little bit. And it was just a nice little touch that I rather enjoyed. Um, now, I love this game. Like, I absolutely adore this game. I think that's obvious from how much I'm talking, despite the fact my throat is on fire right now. And I'm not even done yet. But what the hell is up with R. Lehman's poisoning? This is one of the biggest because plot moments in the entire game. And it's aggravated me every time I've played through this. Let's look at the facts here. Uh, we have on one side Rendon Howe, Loghain, and Jowen. Okay? And arguably Aldred. Now they have this super poison that they give to Arl Eamon. Now this super poison does not kill Eamon. It basically just puts him into stasis. Now this is a setting where they have access to healing magic and alchemy and enchantments. And they flat out say that they have used many of these methods in order to try and heal Eamon, and none of them have succeeded. Why? Why is this super poison just resistant to all of this? That has never made sense to me. And don't tell me it's because the Desire Demon was keeping him under, because you can deal with the Desire Demon before you go get the ashes. And then, he's still under. Like, I, I suppose I do the opposite of a, of a snap, because it's like... You know, nothing happens. He's still down. The poison's still affecting him. You need the ashes to cure him. What the hell kind of mega super, super poison did they give this guy that you require the ashes of a saint, which are either literally the ashes of a saint or super lyrium infused, they let you choose, I like that, um, in order to cure him. 
And keep in mind, that's a, they don't even say how. Do we just sprinkle it on him? I mean, do we make a potion out of it? I don't know. Do we just spit on him? <laughs> Here, get up. <laughs> that's always bothered me. Anyways. I mentioned here that Jowen's an idiot. I've already talked about that, so I'm not going to rehash that territory. I'm also not going to mention too much more about the Redcliffe section, because I've kind of already talked about everything I want to here. The gratitude is awesome. The voice acting is amazing. There's a lot of little stuff you can do. Um, this also kind of... Redcliffe... Obviously, Lothering is the tutorial, but Redcliffe, in many ways, establishes the pattern of Dragon Age. So, here's the, here's the quest hub. And there's a singular main quest arc going through it, which can branch all over the place. But the point being, you're always on this main quest arc. There are lots of little side arcs, and the, these side arcs are always in two categories of side quests. Stuff that can impact the main quest, and stuff that can't. And there's several of these going throughout Redcliffe. Now, most of the Redcliffe side, uh, side quests do specifically impact the main quest, because most of them you do before the attack, and thus what you do and how you do them kind of changes how the attack happens. Not all of them are like that. But that establishes the pattern, and that will hold true for every zone henceforth. For the record, I do like that pattern. It establishes a nice flow of interaction, and it makes it so it's nice and smooth to just kind of go through and do. There's always... I don't have a better way to say that. There's always a good flow of action, a good flow of storytelling uh, as you're going through these zones. Let's just skip forward a little bit here. I actually have more stuff on page two, but we'll get back to that. So we finish up with Redcliffe. Now, I've told this story before, so please forgive me for sharing this again. I actually happened to be playing the Redcliffe section of this game with my niece. She was backseat playing. In other words, I'm the one at the controller. She's the one telling me what to do. RPGs are great for backseat gaming. Uh, Zelda games, too. So we're playing through, and we get to the point where we find out that Isolde, or whatever her hell her name is, is willing to die to save Connor. And she's sitting here on my lap, and she's like, huh? she's the mama's going to die? And I'm like, well, now listen, kiddo, here's our choices. She was being adorable this whole time. She's very intelligent. She picks up on this stuff very quickly. Um, like, she was being awesome the whole time. Like, we have to leave these people behind. Why? Because the zombies can't hurt us, but they might hurt them. So we have to keep them safe. So tell them to stay here. Okay, kiddo. <laughs> very smart. Anyways. So we get to this point, And I explained to her what we can do is we can... The mother loves her son, right? Uh-huh. So because the mother loves her son, she is willing to sacrifice her life to die to save her son's life. That is something she is willing to do out of love. Now, we can allow her to do that, or we can choose to go out of our way and do a lot of extra work and a lot of extra effort and hope that we might have a chance to save them both. So she thinks about this moment. She's pondering, and she's like, Oh, we've got to go. We've got to go save them both. Let's do the extra work. It's better to do the extra work. And I'm just like, Oh, yes, you are awesome, and I love you. <laughs> I just had to share that. So we didn't actually finish Redcliffe right there. We went to the Mage Tower. Now, the Mage Tower is a controversial topic when it comes to discussing this game because at any time this comes up and this came up the last time I was streaming this too when I was you know doing the the kind of partial uh, live rumination stream for this people were like oh the fade sucks the fade sucks the fade sucks and it is my opinion that that's become one of those mimetic things like the prequels the Star Wars prequels right the prequels sucked the prequels sucked the prequels sucked now I'm not saying that people don't actually think that the prequels suck Oh, for Christ's sake. I'm sorry, that's the dog. I'm not saying uh, that's their dog. Uh, that the prequels don't suck. 
that's not relevant. You could, of course, have that opinion if you want. However, I've noticed a lot of people seem to just kind of ape that opinion because it's the popular opinion. Now, I do that too, or at least I used to. I've been trying very hard for the past several years to basically get out of that habit of just agreeing with something because it's the common consensus on a thing. And that applies to the fade because I actually liked playing through the fade this time. Like, I specifically went out of my way to set up a specific save so I would go through without any kind of cheats and on hard difficulty. I didn't turn it up to Nightmare because I wasn't ready for that and I don't have time. But in order to go through it, and I still very much enjoyed it, and I kind of want to talk about why very briefly from a game design perspective. So first of all, obviously as you're going through the Mage Tower, you don't really have the option to do side quests like you can for most of the other things. The Mage Tower is probably the biggest branch off of that uh, quest pattern that I mentioned earlier when it comes to most of the zones. Instead, most of that pattern is presented within the Fade. Not a lot of people are fully aware of the fact that you can skip a huge amount of the Fade if you just blitz through it. You get the mouse form, and then you rush through the burning area, get the burning man form, rush over to the spirit area, get that form, rush down, get this, push through, and you're, you've, you've opened all five seals. You don't have to do most of the Fade. You can. Side quests, you get spe- you get permanent stat-ups, you get some other boosts. Um, and, of course, you can get some great character moments. And how you interact with those characters and what they do and how they do also significantly changes how uh, the final fight with the Sloth Demon goes in. Which is also important in its own right because of the nature of that fight. Because that's a hard fight. I would argue that the Sloth Demon is by far the biggest battle in the Mage Tower, not the final fight with Uldred. Uh, or Pride Demon, I should say. Um, the Mage Tower also is a great example. See, I've, I've kind of already talked about ma- mages and magic, but this is pretty much when uh, a lot of the reality is showcased. We hear a lot about mages and the mage problem. We hear about, you know, magic was made to serve man, never to rule over him. And we learn about, about the Templars. And basically, all we ever see is the bad side of the circle and the Templars until we get to this section of the game. This is when we see the good side of them, and I know that sounds like a weird statement, given how messed up this whole thing is, but my point is we see just how bad things can get if things get out of hand. In a fairly short amount of time, because of one idiot who made one mistake, for those of you not aware, Aldred panicked and freaked out and was like, I shall summon a demon, and um, it took over him and he became an abomination, and Ultra died effectively in that moment, so henceforth it's always the pride demon. Um, one idiot in one moment basically screwed all this over. We could see the level of devastation that can be caused if this problem is allowed to get out of hand, and so you can kind of see why they keep them on such a tight leash, even if, you know, there are issues here. Again, nuance, right? We also see... Uh, the nature of how a lot of these demons actually work in action. We see the desire demon. This is probably our first real interaction with the desire demon. We see the one with the Templar. And we also, you know, the one who wanted the loving family and the one you could talk with and interact with. This also establishes a trend throughout most of the franchise, actually. The fact that you can bargain with them because they are intelligent creatures who are more than willing to bargain with you, especially if they're afraid of you. Uh, this is also a, th- a true thing for the desire demon back in Redcliffe, by the way. Because you can just be like, nope, I want you to give me this and I want you to go away. Okay. You know, they're willing to bargain if they feel like they have to. I've always liked that aspect of it. Anyways, but then there's the Sloth Demon. Now that sucker, he is super strong. I've often wondered if he's the same one from the Mage intro. It's the same voice actor, but that doesn't mean anything because all of the demons use the same voice actors as long as it's the same type. 
Um, side note, really quick, just while I'm thinking about it. I've always wanted the Pride Demon from the Mage Origin to come back in some way. He never has, to my knowledge. Unless it's the Pride Demon in Uldred, but there's nothing to indicate that. I've always wanted that Pride Demon to come back. Anyways, moving on. So, we see how the Desire interacts. We see how the Sloth interacts. He's got his own little domain. That's the Fade section of the game that I mentioned earlier. And I want to give praise to the Fade section, because the Fade section does something that another part of the game, which we'll get to in a bit, does not do very well at all. It has variety to it. Because of the shape-shifting, and because of the different areas, and because of the different styles of puzzles that you go through, you're not just going down another corridor and fighting more fights, and then another corridor and fighting more fights. There's a little bit of variety to it. Not a lot, I'll be honest. But it was engaging enough that I found myself enjoying it. Again, even going through this time. You can actually avoid a lot of those fights if you just mouse form and stealth around, too. Which is something I don't think I've ever even done before, except on Nightmare Difficulty. Um, and then, of course, you get to the very top. You, there's some... <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that exists in the Mage Tower only to develop your character. What do you do with the, the Blood Mage? Well, you can spare her, or you can kill her, you can do a lot of in-between. Uh, what do you do with Cullen? <laughs> Cullen. And, of course, when you get to the very top, we see something kind of messed up. It's also the first time we see this. So we know a demon can infest a mage. We've seen that in Connor, and, well, that's it. We also know that a demon can full out usurp, abomination, a mage, and thus destroy the mage. We've seen that with the Sloth demon earlier, and we've seen that with Uldred, although we didn't quite know that yet. When we get to the top, we see that mages can be tortured into dying, basically. A demon cannot force their way into a person unless there is something to allow that to happen. In other words, it's, so I mentioned earlier that mages are always in danger, but most of that danger is from lack of knowledge or lack of defenses. You know, in other words, a mage generally has to let a demon in to destroy them and become an abomination. What we see here is mages who are quite literally being tortured into accepting this as a way of ending their torment and ending their pain. And that's kind of messed up. Basically torturing someone into accepting death. Anyways. So we beat him. Pride Demon's gone. Gregor's surprisingly decent for being a Templar. Irving's cool. Next place I went to... Um... Oh, right, sorry. I, I... Next place I went to was Redcliffe. And... Uh... I do love the fact that the the final encounter with the Desire Demon in Redcliffe gives you many, many options for making sure that you can get through it. Because it's possible by this point in the game you don't have Morrigan. Um, you really, really, really have to work at it to make that happen. Um, it is possible you don't have Win. That's relatively easy. And... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Why did I say Morrigan? I meant win. It's possible you don't have win, and it's possible you're not a mage. I'm sorry. <laughs> a lot of information here. Please forgive me. So, having looked at this, what we have is a situation where basically Morrigan is the last choice. Morrigan is the very last possible option for going into the into and fighting the Desire Demon. If you choose to kill Isolde and therefore do not have access to Irving and you chose to kill Jowen, and therefore do not have access to him, you still have access, and you are not a mage, and you didn't the mage of the mage tower, Morgan's the last option. If you're a mage, obviously you can go. If you go to the mage tower, you can go as Irving, who's a little bit stronger. If you go in, uh, and if you spare Jowen, you can go in as Jowen. I, I just, it's just another part of that whole multiple options to victory thing. I do wish the uh, other characters are set up a little bit better, but whatever. Is also another example of why I say that you being a mage kind of makes this work a little bit better because you get different 
uh, interactions if you go in there. And of course, this is probably the simplest and best way to peacefully learn blood magic as a mage. And another example of how blood magic is not necessarily inherently a bad thing, because, you know, you can go in there to learn it to be evil, you can go in there to learn it to be pragmatic, or you can go in there to learn it to be good, or any other variation. So next I went after the ashes, because it just kind of seemed logical here. And we went through Cultist Town. Now, I actually don't have a lot to say about Cultist Town. Um, I don't even remember the name of the place. Didn't write it down. What I do want to say about Cultist Town is, I wonder how many other offshoots of the Chantry there are. If you don't get what I mean by that, uh, in real life history, most religions have like three or five or 50,000, slight exaggeration, different sects. You know, they, they all believe the same general thing, but we think that orange is purple, and we think orange is blue. We think orange is red, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, little minor variances in orthodox or in preaching or belief or whatever. You know, whatever is considered canon. Uh, and we don't see a lot of that in subsequent games as well. But I, there's this little town out in the sticks which have their own little version of the Chantry. And I always found that kind of fascinating. They're obviously crazy, evil, insane cultists. But at the same time... Doesn't that sort of make sense, that there would be different people who would branch out and believe different things? The Guardian flat out mentions that one of the biggest reasons why these people start going, woo, and following their own thing is because they have nothing to really concrete them to their ideal, just the concept of the ideals themselves. So when they see something miraculous, the dragon in this case, they're like, ah, ah, and that just has to explain it. That's just logical. Speaking of which, I did not fight the high dragon this time around. I thought about it. But in my experience on Nightmare Mode, the High Dragon was not the hardest fight in the game. Second hardest for me, personally. Uh, still a very rough fight. I do like that it's optional. What I wish is that they communicated that better, because there's nothing really to indicate that it's optional. There's just this dragon that swoops down. It's like, okay, and then you run through, right? The Guardian is one of the other things I want to talk about, though. So, what do you think the Guardian is? I've had a couple theories about this, and I'm going to show you mine, of course, but I'd love to hear yours as well. Some people think the Guardian is literally a spirit. It's just a, a spirit that's manifesting here because, as we know, thanks to Agra, there's tons of lyrium in this area, and I mean tons. So it's not that out of bound that the Veil is weaker here, and thus the Fade can physically manifest. This also kind of is showed in the different little trials you have to go through throughout the area. It could also be an abomination, or more accurately, a spirit abomination, which I don't think we have a proper term for. The same thing that Wynn is, basically. You know, someone who is, uh, has a spirit that, you know, maintains and, and with, uh, up, uh, upkeeps them, but not one that has completely replaced the individual. In other words, Wynn is still Wynn, in other words. It could also just be a very special enchantment. We know that enchantments can do a lot of things in this setting, and we know that it's possible to do basically a hologram enchantment, so it could be that. It could also just be a person who happens to be sustained by the massive amounts of lyrium in the area. For my guess, I think it's the spirit abomination. That's my personal guess. This person was actually someone who has just been here, who was a human being, who has been here for a really long time and has been in, infused with a spirit of faith or deliverance or whatever. Um, I would actually go with wisdom if I had to pick one. Because of the way he interacts with you guys and just kind of cuts to the heart of a lot of characters just like that. My favorite is the way he interacts with Leliana, which I'll talk more about later. Um, so then I have a note here. Why do the ashes heal Eamon? <laughs> I 
I actually like that they don't answer that, as weird as that sounds, because usually I prefer to have some kind of answer. But they leave it possible that it could be a faith thing. It could actually be the ashes of some holy person, which are divinely inspired. Or it could be ashes that are massively infused with lyrium. Or maybe it just needs to be ashes in general, and anybody's ashes could have worked. I don't know. Maybe the poison ran out. They never actually answer that. So then I went to the elves, the Dalish. I actually don't have a lot to talk about the Dalish here, because the Dalish aren't talked about a lot uh, in Origins. We learn more about the Dalish in subsequent games. What I do like about the, the Dalish... Uh, Going back through this game, I, I was left with an impression that I don't think it, that was actually new to me, a new idea when it came to the Dalish. And that's that the Dalish don't have a culture. Now let me try and explain what I mean by that a little bit. Uh, there's a little side quest with Cayman and uh, Gena? Gina? Gina? I can't remember her name. And they're talking to each other, and both of them seem to think they need to behave in a certain way, but they're not sure how and why. We also know that a lot of Dalish culture is passed down through oral tradition. We also know that they're on the move constantly and don't actually have a place called home. And we know that a lot of their history is lost for obvious reasons, never mind the obvious bias and negative influence that's being put upon them by outsiders. My point is, I feel like the Dalish presume culture, but whatever they're presuming changes based on the circumstances, either by the individual's interpretation or by the needs of pragmatism, or by the, the push of someone who's trying to aim for a little more political power, Zathrian, you know. I feel like there is no actual remnant of what used to be Dalish culture left, which is probably a good thing given what we learn about that in Trespasser, but eh. um, And that instead they just kind of make it up as they go. And as weird as this sounds, I like that. That's just such an interesting concept that I might want to try and write something that into one of my settings in the future. Zathrian. Zathrian. Zathrian is a wonderful example of the cycle of revenge. Something happened to his son and wife, or son and daughter, excuse me, which was really, really horrible. I'm not even going to say it. It's just, it's messed up. So he curses them in a horrible way so that they will be dead. But then they try to push back against him to get rid of the curse because they have spread the curse to people who are now innocent, but he refuses to, so they then affect innocent. And it, it just it kind of cycles around here a bunch. I also like how they don't make it... How do I phrase this? I like how they make it hard to get the best outcome here. Best, i got to put that in quotes. Because there's a lot of outcomes here. You can just side with the werewolves and murder all the people in the camp, probably a more pragmatic-slash-evil option. But you can just do that. You can just say, yeah, let's go massacre them all, stab, stab, and kill all the Dalish. And then you get werewolves for your fight. You can also um, side with the Dalish and massacre all the, the werewolves and kill... Uh, I can't think of her freaking name right now. White Wolf or whatever her name is. Or you can try to bargain with both to free the wolves, which allows the Dalish to move on from, let's call, let's face it, the false leadership of Zathrian, and allows you to get Dalish help in the fight in the future. A couple bonus thoughts here, really quick. I do like how the game makes it very hard to accept this peaceful option. Your first encounter with the werewolves is a violent one. And so is your second, and so is your third. It takes a while for the werewolves to be willing to talk at all, and even then, it's like, yeah, okay, sure. 
Another uh, bonus point, though, is that Zathrian himself basically refuses to accept peace in this. Now, I mention that because I have a theory, a question, basically. Why do you think Zathrian is so opposed to this? Now, the obvious answer is because he hates them, because of the cycle of revenge thing from earlier. But remember that this curse is also what's maintaining his life. And there's a few hints. So he told, tells the other elves that he has rediscovered the secret of elven longevity. This is obviously a lie. But there's a few hints, if you talk around town, that he's basically starting his own little mini-elvish fiefdom thing. That he, more of a cultural fiefdom than a military one, but the same general concept. You know, I am now in charge. I say we should do this because we should do this, and I'm kind of enforcing his will on the others around him. Now, I know he's the keeper and the leader and can technically do that, but you get my point. I get the strong impression that one of the reasons now, in addition to his hatred of them, is that he wants to keep going and establishing his new little mini-empire, or mini-conclave, if you will. It is not until he is defeated and realizes the nature of what's going on that he accepts death willingly, and thus allows him. And even then, you have to persuade him. I... I'm going to... So I'm only going to talk about the DLCs very briefly, and I'm not covering Awakening at all. I mean, I've already been talking for like two hours. I just want to mention very quickly that Avernus is an interesting character and one of the better dilemmas in the game, in my opinion. I'd say probably the second best dilemma overall. The best one being the Balin and Haramont one. Avernus is someone who is obviously very, very pragmatic to the point of basically being fully uh, irreverent towards any kind of taboo. Anything he does is acceptable. Now, any ends justify the means. Or, or any means justify the ends, sorry. You get my point. Um, I also feel very strongly that he is not necessarily a terrible person. He's the kind of person who basically just cares about results and wants to push that no matter what. I do like the fact that his results are concrete and that he is not, despite everything I just said, he's not actually evil. There's no mustache twirling. There's no... <laughs> and he doesn't actually want to hurt people. He will. He will hurt and torture and kill if it accomplishes his goal. But there's no malicious intent. There's no outright seeking to do such harm. Quite the contrary. He's actually trying to cure this overall thing and to desire uh, design a, a future for this anti-darkspawn tech that he's working on so that they can actually make it work in a way so that you know the, the calling goes away and the, the joining isn't a big thing and the harrowing is more survival and etc. Oh yeah, quick aside. What do you think dictates how you survive a harrowing? We don't actually have any information on that. The most prominent theories I've heard are that it's pure random chance, or that it's something about your soul, that it's literally like testing your internal self, if you are strong enough to resist it, you know, willpower kind of a thing. That's what I prefer to like, but who knows. So then we go to Orzammar. Can I just say that I love the Orzammar section of the game, with one exception. Um... I really do. There's so much great about the Orzammar section. I'm going to try and keep this brief because my throat is dying, and I've been talking for a long time now. I love Dwarven culture. I love the idea of the way they utilize castes, because they have the caste system, which is, I mean, it's a caste system. 
But there's also ways to shift casts. There's ways to upgrade casts or even downgrade casts based on your standing or your actions. And of course, your children. Um, the way that uh, children inherit their mother's or their father's casts. And of course, that leads to many women trying to specifically court a someone of a higher caste so that they can then have a child which would then be grandfathered into that higher caste, even though they would not be. They still get to exist and have the benefits of living that kind of lifestyle. There's this whole system, uh, which I love. And, of course, the castless. Now, I've actually had to describe castless to people before. The idea is that they are less than dirt, that they have actually no value, that they functionally have no place in society. What I love most about the castless, and admittedly some of this comes from Dragon Age 2 and Varric, is that the castless are, as I mentioned earlier, absolutely mandatory to the survival of the, or, the, the dwarven people. They cannot continue to function as a society, and most notably as an economy, without the castless basically being able to support them, being willing to do jobs that are otherwise considered uh, forbidden or unacceptable. It's like being a surface dweller. So many, the, the dwarves without the pipeline to the sur- surface, it is implied, and I believe, would cease to exist. They just wouldn't be able to sustain themselves. So they need those castless. They need those castless doing those dirty jobs, doing the trading, doing the interacting with the rest of the world, doing the, you know, all, all of the stuff that keeps the other people on top, but also surviving at all. I love that concept, and I, it's funny to me because I imagine that most dwarves who have a brain know this. They just, well, obviously they don't want to be castless themselves because then they lose all their prestige back home. I'd have to go up top, and I'd have to actually work. Screw that. <laughs> it's a very aristocratic system. Don't mistake me. It would be a horrible place to live, but I love the design of it. Um, the organization of the houses is another thing. This is a place that has noble houses just like most settings do. But the trick is you only become a noble house if you, you personally, become a paragon. And the requirements for being a paragon are purely meritocratic and very strict. You have to do a fairly significant amount of benefit to the dwarven people or to the dwarven society in order to become a paragon. Branca being the most recent one and the only one in quite some time and the only living paragon right now. Not counting Carrot, and he doesn't count. <laughs> so, um, the idea there that if you do something amazing, you and your family can, are organized into a new noble house that then just joins the arist- aristocracy. You can kind of get the idea that most of the noble houses would, you know, most of the shaper, or not the shaper, the, uh, the assembly, excuse me, wouldn't vote for a new uh, paragon unless they do something really significant because every new house means more more seats at the table, so to speak, which can be a good or a bad thing depending on your political leaning. If you want more people to take votes away from your enemy or if you want more votes for yourself or you want more sway with a new house that is unexperienced, there's a lot of nuance to the politics and the culture of the dwarves. It's one of the reasons I love this section so much. I love the shape for it itself. They have a literal malleable history. They literally chisel their history into stone, and that's supposed to make it, like, symbolically, this is in stone, and this is what happened. But we've seen and do see that that can change, that that can be altered, that can be misled. And thus, whatever is chiseled in stone is more accurate to say that that's the official history. And what actually happened, eh, that's a little more debatable. Um, These people deal with the Darkspawn in such a regular fashion that they have an entire legion of troops whose only purpose is to fight Darkspawn all the time. That's all they do. Legion of the Dead. Their entire purpose is to go die fighting the Darkspawn to keep the rest of the people safe. And people sign up for that. 
because they know the threat the darkspawn pose. Remember, anytime a blight is happening, it's kind of a reprieve for them, which means all you have to do to understand how the dwarves live on a regular basis is think about the swarm up top all the time. Think about lothering for a second. Imagine how screwed they were without a, a dedicated army whose only purpose is keeping them alive, with regular recruits constantly joining them. I mean, we know the Dwarven society has been stagnating and, and declining for years, but it's mostly because of the Darkspawn, not necessarily because of their own internecine political and cultural issues, although there is the issue with the Dwarves themselves are getting a little bit politically stagnant, that Varric himself brings up a Dragon Age 2, but I want to get into that right now. <clears throat> the... Uh, the provings. I love the provings. I love the provings. Um, the thing I love, so there's two things I love about the pr provings. Uh, first is the fact that the proving is something that's done as a form of entertainment, of course, and that people can, uh, basically rise to prominence and wealth and prosperity. Ogren himself is someone who is really, really good at provings. It's one of the best warriors of his generation. Arguably still is in some ways. And he was so damn good that he basically became wealthy and privileged and valorous and, you know, upper, upper echelons of society just because he was really good with an axe. I mean, I don't mean to dis dissuade that, because obviously being a good warrior is a very difficult thing to do, but you get my point. They venerate that kind of martial prowess. It makes sense that they do, because they have to deal with the dark spawn all the time, and have for centuries, uh, which brings me to my next point. They have a whole cultural, in fact, I would argue so much as to say, religious side to the provings as well. Whoever wins a proving is right. They are the ones who have the blessing of the ancestors, and therefore they are the ones who are actually correct. Someone could go out there and say, The earth is flat. And if they win that proving, the dwarven people will be forced to say that the earth is flat. Because that's the one, that's how that works. And of course, lots of people use this and abuse this in order to get their own ways. Balin being one of the most obvious examples of someone who constantly is manipulating the proving. But that's, of course, because Balin doesn't actually uh, believe in that. He is, as I said earlier, progressive. So we can see how people can misuse and abuse the system, but also how it itself is a fascinating just test case of culture. I love it. Uh, and then, of course, there's the Haramont and Balin thing. But before we get to that... Let's talk about the fanboy. Why the hell is there a low-gain fanboy here? I've always wondered about that. He's here basically just to demand that the Deshers bow, right? That's his whole shtick. You will follow us or you will die. Um, he also calls him King Loghain. That's always weirded me out. And I have my own headcanon on the idea. I think this guy actually isn't a Loghain person at all. In fact, I don't think Loghain even know he was here. Uh, I actually think that Howe sent him here, Rendon Howe. And thus, that would explain why he is like King Loghain, because Loghain himself is very adamant about the fact that he is not king, he is regent. I am in charge of the armies, the end. <laughs> Anyways, uh, just looking at my notes here really quick here. Uh, the fact that the, this is another thing about the dwarves, again, very violent culture. They're willing to kill someone in cold blood in public over what is effectively a minor dispute. You know, I will not have a, a quarrel in the royal court, but I, you will not say that to the man who should be king! Stab! It's, it's actually more like a chop, but you know, get my point. They just kill a guy over that. What in the hell? There's no consequence for that. That's not murder. They're fine. <laughs> that says a lot for the kind of culture that these people have, for how violent the dwarves are in general. I've heard some people refer to the dwarves as drow. 
except you know less evil i kind of like that idea uh dagna she's cool obviously her going topside is castless i already kind of talked about castless but what i find most amusing is when you tell her dad he's just wigged out because well now she can't marry and now she can't come home and now she can't you know the idea that it's about her status rather than uh her the individual and of course dagna's kind of awesome in the future so that's nice but anyways uh, so let's talk about the deep roads next sorry i was debating i got a few more things to talk about we're actually kind of winding down and all my stuff to talk about here finally i don't like the deep roads <laughs> the deep roads are by far my least favorite part of the game by a huge margin um the deep roads feel like they don't fit in any of the structure of the game, and in total contrast to the fade, aren't varied at all, don't really have any interesting gimmicks or tricks or, you know, the shape-shifting or anything like that. You're just going through a cave and then going through a rune and then going through a tunnel and then going through a cave and then going through just fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. Every time I get to Orzammar, I love Orzammar, the city. Then I hate the deep roads and I love the conclusion. That's it's my favorite part of the game, except for that one huge section. And I think my the biggest reason I don't like the Deep Roads is because they're just boring. I mentioned earlier that there's the, the main quest, side quest stuff, but all of that's back in the city. All that all that stuff happens there. You don't really get a lot of side questiness. There's like two things you can do on the way to uh, on the way to the anvil. And that's it. Uh, but of course, after we go through the Deep Roads of Doom, we end up with Hespeth... Bronca. Now, I've gone on record as saying that, in my opinion, Bronca is the single most evil entity in this game. And I stand by that. Uh, she's going up against some hella competition, including Howe, Rendon Howe. But uh, I still stand by that statement. This woman has issues. This woman has volumes. Hespeth is a wonderful example of how well designed this whole section is. Because in addition to just being creepy and terrifying, and of course the wonderful cultural and political stuff back in Orzammar, this is all being done for a revelation. This is when we start to understand a little bit more about the nature of the Darkspawn. Uh, really early in the game, in Ostagar, there's a soldier who says, I don't want to hear any stupid rumors about what the Darkspawn do with you. They just You just kill them. It's not about morale, okay? We're just going to fight the enemy. Let's go. Well, now we learn that they do actually kidnap people of both genders, it's worth noting, because the men are food. And the women are worse. We see that the Darkspawn, again, going back to that whole animal mentality thing, naturally capture females of regardless of race in order to force them to eat Darkspawn flesh and guck, which then spreads the actual corruption, the taint, into them, which then slowly morphs and changes their body into something that can birth new darkspawn it's how they reproduce it is extremely messed up and very gross and i kind of like how hespeth knowing this is coming commits suicide rather than lets her finish the transition now that's messed up but the way this is well constructed in addition to the other things i already mentioned is that we learn about this because bronca has deliberately exposed her own people her own loyal subjects and house and family and lover in Hespeth, to this in order to have a number of Darkspawn to throw at traps so she can get to the forge. That's it. She in, in, in subjected people to one of the worst fates that exists in this setting 
to have cannon fodder. Yeah. There's a lot of ways the anvil situation can go, as I mentioned earlier. But one of the things I love about it, really, is the beauty of the dilemma. The anvil itself, is it's so obvious to see its benefits and its detriments. The benefits is, is duh, we probably have shale by this point in time. And if you don't, you should. You should really have shale before you go to the anvil, because Keratin actually uh, house Kadesh. Um, but we know how strong golems are, and how useful they are. Even without, and of course, control rods can control them, which is kind of messed up considering all golems are people. But, you know, a golem can be a self-willed entity, which can, can be extremely powerful and useful, and is in fact very useful in the final battle in this game. So, duh, people would sign up, people would volunteer to do this. People did volunteer to do this. Problem is, you can kind of see how this can lead to a problem of being abused, just like it was. He flat out says, a river of blood flowed through my forge as people who were criminals started being condemned to being golems. This goes back to the tranquil thing I mentioned earlier. I mean, pragmatically speaking, if you have a bad dwarf who is actually a criminally horrible person, let's make them useful and turn them into a golem. We'll have a control rod to keep them under control and we'll be good. Right? But of course... That power is only as use, is only going to be kept in moderation so long as the people using it are kept in moderation. Even if you have a good king and a wise king and a just king who is willing to only do this against the worst of criminals for pragmatic reasons, well then he dies of old age. Time passes. New king comes to mode and says, you know what? I don't like these other people. Now I'm going to slip into controversial territory for just a second here. Please forgive me. But one of the things that is really bothered me about American politics, United States politics in the last probably 10 or so years at this point, is how vitriolic all of the sides involved have gotten towards each other. Um, and I look at this thing, and I look at how the anvil was actually used in setting, and I can't help but think that some extremists from any given side in the politi current political climate of real life would see nothing wrong with forcing people on the other side of the fence to be put into golems as a consequence of, of the current political climate. That's all you have to do to look at to see how horrifying this anvil really can be. And that's one of the reasons why I've always destroyed it. Because screw that mess. Anyways... Having done so, and then of course you have Haramont and Balin. I have to talk about Haramont and Balin. There's no good answer there. There's no best answer. Haramont is a good man who is traditional and weak. He knows how to get some people on his side, but mostly because those people are using or manipulating him or his position. Balin is kind of a bastard, as I mentioned earlier. I kind of already talked about Balin. But he is someone who is very progressive and very strong politically. He knows how to manipulate others, and he knows how to get stuff done. Who do you pick? Now, historically, I tend to pick Balin. I have actually had some people say that Balin is no different than Anora, and therefore I shouldn't dislike Anora as much as I do, and I should just pick her. But I don't agree. Because, functionally speaking, Anora is more the Haramont here. Anora is the one who just wants to keep everything the same. 
wants to make sure that we all have the same kind of political mess of lying and misdirection and deceiving and just being a horrible woman. Um, whereas Balin is someone who actively wants to try and make things different and try, wants to try and improve things, uh, greater, greater relations with the surface, greater protections for the castless, greater changes to the overall dwarven culture. Keep in mind, as I mentioned earlier, dwarves are basically dying out. They need someone to change the way they're doing things. So for me, Balin's really the only option here. But it's a great dilemma. It really is, because there is no actual good choice here. Even putting Balin in charge means basically being a bastard and, uh, and, and causing a lot of untold strife as he butchers his way into power. This is especially funny if you're a dwarven noble when you do this. Before I get to the final section of the game, I want to talk about the characters briefly. And I say briefly because I'm, I'm starting to get hunger pains. I've literally been sitting here talking so long, I'm starting to get a little dizzy. <laughs> this might be my longest rumination yet. Holy crap. This is what you get when you ask for a proper remake. Please don't ask for any more proper remakes. A lot of the characters, uh, a lot of the main characters, a lot of party members, have had a lot of thought put into them and were written by different people, which helps to flesh them out significantly. Uh, one of the common trends is that they have masks. Sometimes one, sometimes multiple. Alistair has the most. Alistair is the most obvious example of this. I do like Alistair for reference. In fact, I like all of the party members in Dragon Age Origins, which is one of a very small number of games I can say that about. Um, Alistair is the most obvious because he's got this mask of irreverence and uh, <laughs> joking around, and oh, I just love how a blight all oh, brings everyone together. You know, he's just got that kind of jocular, I don't care about anything facade, and it is a facade, and we can tell relatively early. The first time we ever see Alistair lower his mask is during the harrowing, when, you know, when the two people who are not you die. And then he just lowers that mask for a bit and lets, lets through how much it bothers him. And you could see him, he just kind of does this, depending on how you act throughout the course of the game. Another good example is when you have your first uh, nightmare about the archdemon. He drops the mask for a bit to be real with you, and then puts it right back on. He is also very thoughtful and intelligent, and most interestingly enough to me, he's very observant. He pays a lot of attention. Well, let me rephrase that. He can pay a lot of attention, but he usually doesn't. He has a lot of problems with, with being in charge, which is the most obvious thing. But more to that, he has a lot of problems with loss. His whole fear of being in charge isn't about the fact that he thinks he would be a bad leader or the fact that he lacks confidence. It's that he doesn't want that kind of burden of knowing that loss. He has been a soldier in more ways than one. He knows what it's like to, to see people who are ordered into their deaths or, he, or to be ordered to accomplish whatever. I mean, he, he was under Eamon for however long, just like Connor was. He does not want to be the person who says, turns to someone he knows and may or may not care about it and say, I demand that you go off and die. It's a nice little uh, aspect to him. The biggest problem with Alistair is that he has a little bit of a binary morality, which just doesn't fit this setting. He tends to think of things in black and white. The biggest example of this was when it comes to Loghain. He is utterly adamant against going with Loghain. In fact, to my knowledge, there's only one way for you to keep Alistair as a party member or as king or whatever and spare Loghain. And it's, I don't remember the path right now, please forgive me, but I know there's a way you can do it. Pax found this out and I was like, holy crap. Um, Alistair, that being said, reminds me a lot of Kaelin. <laughs> the two look a lot alike, too, which is funny. But the reason I mention that is because Alistair is the kind of person who I firmly believe could be a good king if 
he had time to work into it. He wouldn't be a good king now. In fact, he'd be a terrible king now. But if he was allowed to grow into the role, I think he would do well. Of course, I would think the same thing about Kalen, but, you know, whatever. I mention this, though, because that brings up the hardening. Now, you can harden out Alistair and you can harden Liliana. I never harden either, for reference. But that's because I'm more of an idealist than anything. There's a lot of pragmatic reasons to harden both of them, to make them uh, more cynical, more bitter, more practical, and basically worse people, but more capable of dealing with a very harsh and unforgiving world. That's the whole point of that. And if you do that, Alistair becomes a far more brutal king and far more arguably effective king but I also would say that he becomes less of a progressive king, that he is more content with simply allowing things to be the way they are. And as I think I made clear earlier, I would rather things change. Also, I have to admit, an unhardened Alistair sends you one of the funniest notes in Dragon Age Inquisition uh, if you leave him unhardened, and, and he's king, so whatever. Morrigan. Alistair and Morgan are my favorite characters, by the way, in this game, just to lay that out really quick here. It's hard for me to pick between the two of them. Morrigan is arguably more nuanced than him, but at the same time, a lot of that is on the weight of the voice actress. Claudia Black, uh, that is her name, right? I know Claudia is her name, because I say that all the time, but she is a really, really good voice actress. She knows how to put the exact right type of hesitance or un or unspoken emotion into her tone. She, she is the exact, she and Morgan are the exact opposite of on the nose. Rather than just saying what she's feeling or saying what she's thinking, she will say what she wants to say and you will infer what she is thinking or feeling from her performance. It is absolutely amazing. She also has multiple masks. Now the most obvious mask is the hard mask, the one of mockery, the one of bitterness, and the one of cruelty. This is the mask of, let's call it what it is, survivalism. The mask that has been built into her over her time under Flemeth. We get, there's a wonderful scene, forgive me, in Inquisition where she will confront Flemeth over this. And again, the actress sells this scene because you just get how much she suffered and how much she hated being under Flemeth from that scene and from how she just rails on her. You will not take my son. You will not do to him what you did to me. That is not something that I will accept, you know. Um, it is very powerful and very impacting and a holy crap. But we get, and she could just stay that way the whole game. A lot of these characters may or may not change based on your choices. So obviously, again, lots of branching options in this game. I love it. Uh, if you peel back that mask of the survivalism, there is actually another mask under there. The other mask under there is the ambition, the the drive, the passion, the power is all that matters, and life is all that matters, and a few other party members, this is very true in banter, manage to get past that first mask of survivalism to see the second mass of, of, of the ambition. I want to call it ambition because that's the primary point there. And Morrigan is also fantastic because there's a moment if you're romancing her. She's my favorite romance option. In fact, she's one of the only romance options I've ever liked in gaming, ever. Um, where, you know, you can, you can say, hey, honey, basically, and she says, eh, no, go away. And if you say, well, what's wrong? She will immediately get very defensive and say, oh, oh what? Should I just dance to your tune and, and do whatever it is you demand of me? I am not so, some simple toy. In which you can respond in a number of different ways, which can have significant uh, conflict with that relationship. But, 
if you instead respond very kindly and politely and just say, no, I'm sorry, I, I just was concerned about you, and she will not have any idea how to deal with that. Morgan is interesting to me because underneath both masks, what you have is someone sensitive and... <sighs> I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Sensitive, vulnerable, and sentimental. That's the real Morrigan underneath all of that crap. Underneath all the layers and defenses she's had to build up over the years. And she hates that part of herself. She fights against it constantly. She even flat there's this great line where, you know, I, this could have, this could have been so much easier <laughs> this, if we hadn't gotten close, but I don't regret it for a second. Why would she? I have talked many, many, many times recently about the difference between tangible and intangible. And Morgan is someone who very firmly is someone who values and cares about the intangible and has been trained her whole life to only care about the tangible. And it's that wonderful contrast between those two things that makes her character so interesting. That and the amazing writing and the awesome acting. Um, the, I love it when you give the mirror to her. And she's like, oh, what do you want for this? Uh, nothing. It's a gift. Please enjoy it. Oh, you're giving me something to just to give to me. Um, and again, I can't do it. The actress sells the line, but she says, I suppose I should say thank you. Like, like, there's so much hesitance there. Like, how do I react to this? Morgan has no idea how to respond to genuine kindness, which is one of the reasons I love just showering her in it. But anyways, I suppose it's a good time to talk about Liliana. I love this. This reminds me of Final Fantasy VII. I know that's a weird parallel, but hear me out. In Final Fantasy VII, there's Tifa. Now, she is a monk and a badass. She actually operates a bar in the slums. And this woman can beat the ever-living snot out of people and is one of the most martially skilled individuals we encounter throughout the course of the game, in lore. She is also very tender, sweet, kind, and hesitant, and has a lot of self-esteem issues. By contrast, there's a woman who wears all pink... Who, has, who, who interacts with flowers and is part of an ancient race and, you know, ha ha. That's the, the woman who is very abrasive, very, almost tomboyish, and uh, comes across as someone who, you know, will be far more aggressive and, uh, I, I'm just going to go back with abrasive throughout the course of that game. It's the same thing here. Morgan, you look at her, and if you were to judge her based on her first or even her second mask, you would presume that this is someone who is the bad person. Yet she's the one who is sensitive and kind and loving and etc. It is Leliana, the woman who appears to be the sensitive, kind, loving part, that has her own inner darkness. Now this is what I love about Leliana. Because she comes across... She, she, she's ashamed of herself. She is someone who aspires to be perfect, what her personal ideal is of perfection, the kind, loving, caring person. And I do believe that there is genuine love in Leliana, not necessarily romantic, but the kind of caring about another more than yourself kind of love. I absolutely believe that. But Liliana is also a very dark person, someone who is very comfortable with things like manipulating, deceiving, and killing. And throughout the game, she is ashamed of that. And your interactions with her very significantly change how she deals with that part of herself, whether she accepts it and acknowledges that she is a good person despite that part of herself, 
or if she embraces it and becomes a worse person as a consequence or whether she hardens or there's several permutations of how her character arc goes throughout the course of the game thanks to your interactions with her and what you bring her on. I also uh, have to admit that uh, Liliana's Tale is an awesome little DLC. It has its issues. There's some gameplay problems with the DLC. But from a narrative perspective, it's really, really good. I love it. I uh, highly recommend it. Even if you have to cheat just to go through it or turn the difficulty down or whatever. Now, uh, this is in no particular order, by the way. So I'm just kind of going down the list of companions. Sten. I like to think that Sten is the ideal Kunari from the outsider perspective. Now what I mean by that is later Dragon Age games will make the Kunari a lot more dogmatic and a lot more overzealous. Now this can still make sense in character for why Sten, you know, who was a, a Talvashoth, I think, I can never remember the terms, um, is, would be a little less than most of the other Kunari. But at the same time, I, I like to think basically that this is just because they hadn't really designed all of the Kunari yet. Because again, they weren't th planning for sequels. And then they later went back and made them a lot more <laughs> um, militant religions, you know. <laughs> uh, that being said, though, I do believe that, uh, just my impression, that Sten is someone who is a believer. He is someone who legitimately believes in his cause. But he also is very wonderfully pragmatic. One of my favorite parts about Sten is that he has absolutely no hesitation about questioning and challenging anyone around him at will. But not to be rude, and not because he presumes he knows better. It's because he wants to make sure that you know what you're doing and why you're doing it. My favorite example of this is when, if you bring him to multiple side quest areas, he will eventually confront you about it and say, what the hell are you doing? There's the archdemon. What's your plan? How are you going to stop the blight? What are you going to do about this? He is not asking these questions out of disrespect or disloyalty. Quite the contrary. It is out of loyalty and respect that he does these things. And of course, the easiest way to earn approval with Stan is to stand up to him and put him in his place. Because that shows him that you know what you're doing. It's that pragmatism to him. Sten, uh, Sten also has a mask, but it's probably the most obvious of all the masks, along with Shale. His mask is that I am the warrior who does not care about anything. Of course he cares. He cares a lot about it. Of course he gets really, really emotional about his sword, obviously. I forget his name, please forgive me. But he also gets into things like sweets and little niceties of life. He has his own things that he enjoys. He just, he reminds me about Worf in a lot of ways. In fact, if they actually had Michael Dorn voicing him, that would have been kind of awesome. Because he's got that image, I have to maintain this image at all times. Is that a cake? Oh, no, 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 no. You know. Which brings me to Wynne. Now, Wynne is interesting to me. Uh, Wynne is probably the character that most people I've heard of don't like. Now, I do like Wynne. As I mentioned, I like all of them. But I can see why people don't like her. Because she is a little bit motherly, motherly in a good and a bad way. She will push. She will lecture. And she will be a busybody. However, her reasons for doing so are so obvious. It's because she cares a lot. She cares tremendously about those around her and those under her. She's probably one of the most overall loving, as in caring about others more than herself, people uh, in the entire setting. She also is someone who has a great deal of regret about her life. I, I know this comparison's been made before, but she reminds me a lot about Jolie Bindo. She's ultimately probably the most good character of the party, 
but not because she's an innately good person, because she's already done a lot of bad, because she's already seen a lot of bad, and because she has decided to push against that in her life and in her path going forward. Now, obviously, uh, like I said, she has the most uh, open... She basically doesn't have a mask at all. She is very open about who she is and what she is. And she also goes out of her way to apologize. This is very important to me. Because while she will push and while she will get involved in your business, if given a chance, she'll say, I'm sorry for pushing. I didn't want to be anything. You know, I didn't want to be bad. I'm just concerned. That's important. Being willing to say, okay, my bad, is an important character trait. She also, of course, has the spirit of faith in her, which later goes into Aneirin. Um What I see in Wynne... See, I, it, it's been called a spirit of faith, and that makes sense, but for the longest time I didn't think it was a spirit of faith. I thought it was a spirit of... Uh, I don't know what to call it. The idea here is that Wynne, for all she's done and for all she has failed, and she has failed more than once in her life, she stares at this situation like you know, this blight, and says, I need to do good. I, I have, especially since the game starts, because she's technically dead. She's only being maintained by the spirit. I now am on borrowed time. I have a finite amount of me left. I have to do everything I can in this finite time to help as many people as I can now. And that's exactly what she does. Spoiler alert, going forward into this, until the day when she finally let, lets the spirit go, and, spoiler alert, does finally pass away. Uh, there's that drive, that absolute need to be useful. It's, it's mentioned that she's one of the few mages who actually goes out of her way to leave the tower constantly, not just because she hates it, but because of the fact that she wants to go do good, that she wants to accomplish. She's very much a woman of action, in other words. Now, Zevran. Zevran's an interesting case. Zevran's another fairly complex individual that, unless you do things in a certain way, you don't even get to see the full layers of his personality. Zevran is someone who... He's... He has... Hmm. His biggest mask is his irreverence. Now, I mention that because unlike Alistair, who keeps that mask up but obviously drops it every now and again and obviously cares, Zevran doesn't care. His mask is there because he has nothing underneath it until Rin, until his, his circumstance with Rin, where he ended up having to kill Rin. And that, of course, absolutely destroyed him inside, thus he took the most dangerous assignment he could to get himself killed. Now, I've heard several people, including me, bring up the obvious contradiction that Zevran, you know, obviously wanted to die and then begged for life. But in hindsight, I don't think that's a contradiction because Zevran is, is a yearning. He wants. He doesn't, I don't think Zevran knew what he wanted until he fought the Warden. And then he saw the idea of, oh, Huh. And he didn't actually know what he wanted there. He just saw something there. So he was like, okay, I'll go ahead and bargain for my life. Maybe there's something to this warden. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, he was able to best me and all my people, right? And then, based on how you interact with him, Zevran slowly begins to learn exactly what he wanted. Purpose. Or, if you prefer, meaning. 
The idea that Zevran very much wanted to be someone who had meaning and significance in his life. He's a little person, and he knows he's a little person. He doesn't want to be the big person. He doesn't want to be the world mover. He just wants to be a part of something that matters. And he never had that with the crows, but he can have it with you. The romance reflect this perfectly. Now, I've never personally done the romance with Severin, but I've seen it several times, and I've read it, of course. The, if you push him too hard romantically, the romance actually ends. But if you let him have his space, what happens is Zevran over time, starts to figure out what he's feeling. Because he doesn't know. He's never had a significant relationship before, romantic or otherwise. He's never had significance before. And so the very idea of significance, of something grounding, of something solid, of something bedrock, is alien to him. He's never had anything, not, nothing underneath the mask, nothing underneath the surface. He's been a hollow shell until you have the opportunity to give him something, either romantically or as a friend, as part of this new group, which gives him purpose going forward. Um... And of course, he can, you know, he can escape. He can, you know, he can kill. Uh, you can kill him. There, there's a lot of ways around Zevran. I, if you don't raise his approval enough, he turns on you, because he has no purpose because you didn't give him one. So that makes sense too. Now, Shale. I actually have the least to say about Shale because Shale is the most obvious character. Uh, interesting, funny, good, but ultimately not a lot of layers to her. Ironically, uh, Shale is fairly alien. I love the idea of gems being a cosmetic thing. That's a great idea. Um, she also has the presumption of property. See, what I like about Shale is she has a mask of superiority and uncaring, which is in fact just superiority. She naturally assumes her own superiority to others around her. And that's fine. She's a golem. She is in many ways superior to others around her. But the mask is the uncaring part, because she's been so abused for so long. Uh, she, uh, the, uh, I, I, I <laughs> she likes being part of a group that treats her as an equal. Now that makes perfect sense, because she's basically never had that in her memory. She has had being treated as property by an individual. And I do mean property, literally having to carry someone to walk to and for. The way she talks about, the way she was used and abused, just says so much and is um, really, really horrible. I think I'm just going to summarize that. But one of the things I like about her, again, so she's had the servitude. She obviously likes being an ally. She likes being an uh, equal level with you. And, and if you treat her nicely... She doesn't quite know how to deal with that, but she is very thankful for it and reciprocates it because she knows exactly what the opposite feels like. More than almost any of the other party members, she firmly understands the value of genuine kindness. And if you treat her with that kindness and the politeness and that respect, she will reciprocate in kind because she knows exactly what it feels like to not be treated with any of that. Morgan would be the other example of that. Which leads us to Ogren. I didn't think I'd like Ogren at first, because he's a drunk and a lout and he's crude. But what I love about Ogren is that he is very observant and very powerful and a great warrior. He's also probably one of the most progressive thinkers of the dwarves that we encounter throughout the whole franchise, right up there with Varric. Seriously. He is someone who couldn't deal with peacetime, basically. He was so good in a fight that you know he lost himself and he got disgraced. And he found himself elevated to literal nobility through his marriage with Bronco. 
Some people have debated the nature of the relationship between Branca and Ogren. My personal thinking is that they did have a genuine relationship, uh, which was genuinely based on actual mutual attraction, which went beyond the physical, until her obsession pushed those two away, and then she moved on and, of course, left him behind and then found Hespeth instead. But what I love about Ogren is for all his drunking and boozing, that's, that is basically his mask. Again, a very obvious mask. It's so obvious you can see it in the air sometimes. Because Ogren is someone who, he's not very subtle. There's not a lot of layers of depth to him. He's not super intelligent. He's not a great thinker. And yet, he has a strange wisdom to him. Because Ogren cares immensely about the Dwarven people as a concept, as a whole entity of the Dwarven culture, the Dwarven society. He very much wants a better future for all those people, and as Awakening will show, for his own child. He wants the Dwarves to have a better life, because he himself understands so well exactly how bad it is to be a Dwarf right now. There was a reason he became such a good warrior, after all. After this, we do the Denerim section. Getting back to the game proper here. Now, I'm just going to blaze over the Denerim section because, well, there's some good stuff there. It ultimately just follows the usual pattern. And again, you can do this in you know, a slightly different order. One of the things I love most about this is the lands meet, which you can fail based on your actions. You can. It doesn't end the game, though. I love that. I love the fact that failure is an option and that it just changes what outcomes you get. And yet you can still play the game. It doesn't mean, okay, reload a save. That's awesome. I just wanted to share that really quick. <sighs> That's their dog again. I want to talk about Anora briefly because I don't want to talk about Anora because I hate her. Anora is basically everything I don't like about politicians. I've talked before about how there's good politicians and bad politicians. And, you know, there's being good politically speaking and then there's being Anora. You know, this, this is the, the stereotypical conniving, deceiving, short-sighted, only interested in dealing with whatever's right in front of her at the time, She's very good at manipulating the political scenario around her, but she's only doing so with short-sighted self-interest. That's why I don't like her. I have absolutely zero doubt that Honora only really cares about Ferelden in as so much as it means to her personally, that it is ultimately a selfish desire. Um, I also think that she is basically the exact opposite of progressive, to just keep going back to that thing, that she is someone who very much benefits from the status quo and wants everything to stay right where it is. Um, I want to talk about Riordan really quick here. Uh, Riordan, it's been argued that he would be the real hero of the story, if not for Loghain's paranoiac rantings, and that's arguably true. I mean, the guy literally does sacrifice himself to damage the Archdemon so you can finish it off. But Riordan is also a very important aspect of the game. One of the things the game does, which I haven't really talked about yet, is it's brilliantly structured in terms of its narrative to make you start low level, but very important, but not really knowing why, in other words, it allows, it constructs the story very specifically so that you are playing an RPG. And I know that sounds stupid, but my point being, 
think about how many uh, things had to be done to solve this. How, how much effort had to be put into saying, okay, how could they just fix this situation quickly? Okay, well, what if they do this? All right, we need to write a reason for the other Grey Wardens to not show up. Okay, what else we got? Um, well, how about if they do this? Okay, we need to write a reason for uh, people to not automatically join their side because they're fighting against this. You know, so, you know, I feel like they put a tremendous amount of effort into constructing this narrative such that you are an adventurer, effectively, running around questing and helping people and solving people, and in so doing, gathering uh, basically an army. And then you meet Riordan, and he serves the final puzzle piece. Uh, him, the, the the construction of the final reveals are beautiful, because we don't know the significance of the Archdemon and its respawning ability until basically the very end of the game, right before the final battle, and then it's dropped on us. And of course, that had to be constructed that way because no other Grey Wardens are present. The Grey Wardens don't have a facility here we could use, not counting the keep, which was completely overrun, uh, and uh, we had no access to to finding out. Basically, we couldn't just leave. So we are, we're, and, and the only other Grey Warden we have is Alistair, who was just recently inducted, so he doesn't know either. The idea here being, basically imagine if you were a Jedi, hear me out, and you have been recruited, you're like, oh, I have a Jedi, I have the Force, and then all of the people who know anything about the Force are killed. I, I don't mean like, obviously random people, but like the Jedi Master above you is killed, and no other Jedi Masters exist, so it's just you and this other guy who just became a Jedi like three weeks ago. Slight exaggeration. Thus, the Force is an alien thing to you. You don't even know the dark side exists. And all you have is vague rumors and vague impressions of Jedi and how important they are from the populace. This construction of this narrative ensures that you stay in the dark in a way that makes sense and is fully logical when we finally reveal everything that happens. We finally learn why the Grey Wardens are so damn necessary. Because otherwise, up to this point, it's just like, I mean, they're just a private army who fights Darkspawn. Okay. <laughs> you know. Of course, the other part of the final reveal is Morrigan, but I'll get to that in just a second. But first, I want to talk about the elf alienage and the Deventer. We only get really codex entries about the Deventer, so we don't know a lot about the Deventer Imperium here. All we do know is that slavery is legal there and that they're evil. <laughs> that the mages rule. I don't want to talk too much about the Deventer. What I find most interesting is the pragmatism of Loghain's choice. He allows them to have free reign. He allows the Deventer to have free reign in the alienage, basically in, in, in exchange for their support in his war effort, in, in backing him. Now that makes sense if you don't care about the alienage because you presume it's lost, that you presume there's no salving it, so whatever. Take it, burn it. I will use, you know, it's that whole pragmatism thing again. It just keeps coming up. The tranquil thing, the golem thing, and in this case, slavery. I will accept this horrible thing because that way I can use it to better use. Right? Yeah. Slavery, of course, is illegal. And funnily enough, he doesn't even deny it If you, when you approach him during the landsman. They're like, slave, there's no slavery in Felden. Yeah, but there's no saving elven alienage. So what's the point? What's your problem? Ahem. I suppose this is as good a time as any to finally talk about two characters I've been dancing around this whole time. Uh, of course, I mean the famous Broma brothers. Quick aside. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the High Dragon was not the hardest fight in the game for me. It's actually Sir Cothrian. Now, or Sir Cothrian, I have a, hell, she doesn't say her name that often. Um, 
I have since been told that there's ways to completely glitch out the fight to make it much easier. I've never done those. So that's... I, I've, I've only fought her straight up. And it was very, very, very difficult. You're actually supposed to lose that fight and get captured. Uh, that's the final nail in the coffin for Honora, by the way. I don't take kindly to betrayal. The, and the fact is, she, she explains away her betrayal in one of the stupidest ways possible. She's like, oh, I, I was trying to... We were already caught, lady. What the hell were you trying to do? Anyways. Moving on. I hate Honora. Moving on. Don't have anything else to say about her. Except that it's actually worth getting caught just to see all the escape attempts. Obviously, you know, uh, Zevran and Ogren are best, but if you've ever done uh, Sten and the Mabari uh, Barkamont, it's it's awesome. You should see all of them, just because they're all awesome. Moving on, moving on. Let's talk about Rendon Howe. Now, I don't actually have a lot to say about him, but I kind of wanted to save him for this period, because it leads so neatly into the next character I want to talk about. Howe is... <laughs> I say Bronca is the most twisted, disgustingly evil character, but Howe is kind of a more petty evil. He's actually a small fish. He's a, actually a fairly good example of a Krennic character. He is a small fish who presumes he is a big fish because he has attached himself to Loghain, who is a much bigger fish. I mean, he's one of the only two Terrans in the land. He's also very, very, very selfish and actively depraved. In fact, he's so disgusting in his deprivations, it's astonishing he's allowed to get away with any of it. He is so horrible that he's just... I, I don't even have words for it. He's also someone who is amazingly petty and incredibly short-sighted. In fact, Howe is basically a stupider Honora. Honora, of course, being far more manipulative and duplicitive and basically presenting a pretty face but otherwise being the exact same as Howe in their overall construct. The only problem is, of course, Howe is far more morally depraved, you know, and a lot stupider in how he acts. His, as I mentioned, his takeover of the Coastland thing back in the uh, Human Noble and, uh, origin is just a great example of that. Coastland? Coastland? Um, and, of course, his final words, make her spit on you. I, I deserved more. The big thing I want to talk about with Rendon Howe is his voice actor, Tim Curry, because I honestly think if it wasn't for his voice actor, Rendon Howe might be one of those get-off-my-screen kind of characters. I've said before, for those of you who haven't heard me say it, please forgive me. Um, there's a character you hate, but you want to see more of. And then there's a character you just want off your screen. I, I don't want to see this character. They actively bother me. Stop showing them, right? That's the difference. Because of Tim Curry and his amazing voice acting, I think he stands as the, I actually want to see more of him, I just hate him kind of a thing. I love it. But of course, the only reason he's able to do anything, in my opinion, of course, is because of his association with Loghain. Loghain is probably one of the most interesting characters to talk about for me because, as I already mentioned, everything he does makes sense from his own perspective. He is effectively insane. And I do think that killing him is actually a mercy because of everything he has to go through. However, if you spare him, spoiler alert, he does show up in Dragon Age 2, uh, or Dragon Age Awakening, sorry, and he shows up in Dragon Age Inquisition, and has a major role in Inquisition, at least. I also want to mention this, though, because Loghain is the kind of person who has been through hell, most notably with the Orlesians, basically someone who was tortured into insanity, uh, psychologically as well as physically. But... 
And so his perspective is very understandable. He also does have genuine morals and values. He is just extremely pragmatic. There is what he cares about, and then there is everything else. Logan is the kind of person who, <laughs> like was mentioned, you know, you know, ah, I, I turned traitor and left my people behind, and Logan flat out says to the traitor, at least I took my men with me when I left. And of course, as we know, Loghain, thanks to FutureWorks, we know Loghain was partially right, that Orle was actually uh, scheming to get Ferelden back into the fold. Loghain, though, he has no masks, really. In fact, I would go so far as to say Loghain lacks the ability to have masks. In fact, that's one of his biggest flaws. The man has no real charisma. He is strong, and he is a brilliant tactician, but he is also unhinged. He allows Honora and Howe to do most of the politicking for him, and I think that's one of the reasons the country is in such a mess. I wouldn't be surprised if Loghain was not personally involved with a lot of the people who claimed that they were working on his behalf that we encounter throughout the course of the game, that most of that was being done by his lackeys or side people. I need the mages under control. Go get the mages under control. You can almost see him just saying that, right? Because to him, this is a very simple situation. Let's deal with the blight. We must attend to reality, Kalen. You know, we get to deal with the blight, and once we've dealt with the blight, then we'll fortify our borders and we'll make sure nothing interferes with the, with the life or livelihood of my daughter or my people or my country that I have bled and screamed and mentally died for. I've actually legitimately considered changing my own canon playthrough to spare Loghain, just because I'm curious, obviously Dragon Age 4 will probably never come out, what would happen in the future, given Inquisition. The Battle for Denerim is one of my favorite finales in video gaming history, and I mean that sincerely. Um, it, it does a lot of things right. You see this epic moment of everyone, get, everyone getting together, and who is there and why they're there is all because of you. Your choices actually matter in Dragon Age. You decide who shows up. You decide if it's werewolves or elves or golems or dwarves or if, you, if it's the mages or the Templar. Those people are there because you fought for them or you chose them or you made the pragmatic choice or you didn't care about them or whatever. However you decided to play it. Maybe you just think golems are cool looking and you don't give a crap about the lore. That's fine because you made that choice. You decide how that conclusion comes to be, and which party members you have here, have there. And then you have sections where you split up the party, and you can have like a whole section of gameplay here with multiple enemies coming from multiple areas and being able to use like basically what are effectively special abilities based on which army units you have. Being able to summon golems, like I said earlier, or being able to, to have dwarves come in or have mages launch attacks or whatever. These little, this could use some polish, admittedly, and in a modern system, this would be fantastic, almost perfect. But the amount that your choices all culminate in this battle are, are amazing. Um, and it's basically one log slog, I'll admit that. It's a lot of fighting. But there's also some great character moments in between, a lot of good cutscenes, and I help to flesh out the moment rather than just one long corridor. It avoids the, the deep roads problem, especially because of the fact that you have multiple choices in how you proceed. And you, the fact that you have to split the party is also part of that. You need some people to deal with the throng, which also helps to sell the scale of the event. We keep hearing about this civil war, and we keep hearing about how the horde is, is stretching across. This is the first time the game tries to show you 
in gameplay, not a cutscene, exactly what's happening with this battle and how large scale it is and how devastated Denerim has become. Which, of course, adds another point, and this is a very minor thing, but it's still true. One of the other smart things they did is right towards the end of the tower, there's Sandal, who's the maker. And as you talk to Sandal, he is a vendor who will enchant and sell and buy and repair and all that fun stuff. This is relevant because it means that these final fights leading up to that point are not useless. You still gain from them. You still gain experience, you still gain equipment, you still gain money, which you can then use to, to get yourself ready for the actual final fight. The actual final, final fight itself is probably as complex as this engine allows it to be. Again, a more modern system could do so much more with it. But at least there's interactables and the ballista and the moving around and lots of abilities and conal attacks and all that fun stuff. And then you kill him! The end. And then, in my opinion, the only good Bioware ending ever happens. There's a great coda which varies depending on your choices and who's alive and who do chose what with Morrigan and all that fun stuff. And having, and then you get to talk, and basically as you talk to people or as you watch the cutscene unfold, you see, once again, the full consequences of, of your choices of, of all the major connecting points up to this point. And then you get the actual epilogue. Now, some people think an epilogue is kind of cheating. And it kind of is, because it's a lot cheaper and easier to do than making all of that cutscene and voice acted. But, at the same time, I do appreciate the epilogue and covering just about everything that you do. Every little choice, you see what the consequences are of all that and how exactly your Dragon Age world and your Warden finish that all up. I love this game. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I hope you've enjoyed me talking for three hours. I'll just kind of... It's almost at the three-hour mark as I'm looking at it. And right there. That's the three-hour mark on the recording. I hope you've enjoyed this. I'm going to go take a bit of a rest. I will see you guys next time.